Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Hey, it's Friday, January 19th. You made it through another week. Good for you. Good for you. Uh, And for those of you who don't have the weekend off, you have my enduring esteem and gratitude because you are the ones who keep things together and keep things moving along uh, so that the rest of us can go places and do things and be safe on our weekends. We appreciate you. (laughs) I know I say that every week, but, you know, I spent I spent many, many, many years working weekends And sometimes the people who work weekends, you know, they feel a little underappreciated and frankly ignored. (laughs) Forget about underappreciated. That would mean that at least at some level you acknowledge them. But you know what? You go to the ER over the weekend and you do not expect to find it empty. No, you do not. You go to the grocery store, same thing. Heck, you go to a big box store, same thing. So uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your sacrifices for the rest of us. We do appreciate it. Okay, uh, lots to talk about today. Doesn't look like Benjamin Netanyahu has um, become a kinder, gentler, less extreme person with the current Gaza situation. He has uh, come out publicly and said that he is opposed to a two-state solution in the Middle East. You know, this is something that was uh, discussed back when uh, Yasser Arafat, then head of the PLO, was at Camp David, and uh, the pressure was really on to try to get a two-state solution, and uh, Yasser Arafat of the Palestinians was not uh, sure that that was what was what he wanted right then and right now. And it didn't it didn't happen. Uh, I personally don't see how you find any long lasting peace in the region without a two state solution. And I I think that this is very, very wrong headed and short sighted on the part of Benjamin Netanyahu. But as I've told you repeatedly before, I think he's a terrible leader. I think he's an absolutely terrible leader, so it kind of doesn't surprise me. I mean, this is the guy who tried to take all the power uh, from the Israeli Supreme Court. Yeah, you know, he like, you know how Donald Trump says if he gets elected again, he's going to make sure that the legislative and judicial branches of government are subservient to the executive branch, because really, really the executive branch, that should be like above everybody else. Not three equal branches the way our forefathers plotted it out. No. Um, Netanyahu is trying to do the same thing. So he did this big move to try to take power away from the Israeli Supreme Court. <laughs> the, the ruling was challenged and the court struck it down, which just seems so appropriate, doesn't it? <clears throat> So, um, you know, I've said repeatedly, I think he's the Donald Trump of the Middle East. Oh, by the way, I got so wrapped up in talking about this. It is Friday. You probably remember that. We talked about Friday a few minutes ago. And every Friday, 
we open up the phone lines. The first half of the show, uh, we are going to play some sound clips, and I want you to call in starting right now and tell me what stories of the today or the last week that you really want to talk about. That number, 773-763-9278. You can remember it the easy way, 773-763-WCPT. Just punch in the call letters for our radio station. Okay, you can um, call and talk to the lovely Paul Shavari, who is just waiting by the phone, waiting for it to ring. Um, and then Paul will make sure you get on the air. Or if you uh, don't really want to talk live on the radio today, shoot me a text. Use that same number, 773-763-9278, 773-763-WCPT. And you can shoot me a text if you want to um comment on any of the things that we decide to talk about today. Already got a text. Boom. Coming in right now. Uh, Netanyahu wants war dragged out in the Middle East to avoid criminal trials against him. Well, that that wouldn't be the first time that a politician has tried to use some event as a distraction to keep him out of trouble. My personal feeling is that this, however, this whole situation with Gaza resolves itself. I think politically Netanyahu's dead. Whether or not he ever, I know he's facing um, some criminal charges. Whether or not he's found guilty of anything, whether or not he um, spends any time in jail, I think that he has been so radical for so long. Sometimes the people who are in the middle, you know, those of us who are kind of um, more easygoing about things, it takes sometimes a lot to get us up off the couch and get us to really get involved politically. But I think Netanyahu has made so many people upset that I think his I think his days in leadership are numbered. Uh, Tammy Duckworth issued a statement today about uh, Netanyahu opposing a two-state solution. This is um, what Tammy Duckworth released. Frankly, I'm appalled at Prime Minister Netanyahu rejecting a two-state solution in the Middle East, because that means he is effectively ruling out a sustainable, peaceful outcome in the long term. The only viable path to lasting peace is establishing a Palestinian nation-state alongside Israel, Prime Minister Netanyahu is not only out of step with the majority of Israeli citizens, he is also flat out wrong about what is needed to keep his country safe and secure in the future. I remain committed to doing everything I can to bring about a de-escalation of tensions in the region that ultimately brings about a two-state future that strengthens the safety of Israel, eliminates the threat posed by Hamas, stops the mounting death toll, and finally ends the prolonged and continuing suffering of Palestinians. Senator, Illinois Senator Tammy Duckworth issued that statement after it became public 
That is Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has uh, said he is in opposition to a two-state solution in the Middle East. I, I don't understand. I really don't understand what is going on there. I mean, is he now like Trump in that everything he does and says is designed to cater to only the most radical elements in Israel? It seems that way. It sure seems that way. A little bit um, later today, we're going to be joined by political science professor William Muck from North Central College in Naperville. And uh, maybe he'll be able to give us some insight into what could possibly be behind Benjamin Netanyahu coming out publicly and saying that as far as he's concerned, a two-state solution is off the table. It just seems so counterproductive. So back here uh, in this neck of the woods, we um, we have a couple of big issues. Of course, the budget. Um, you may have um, seen that the Republicans did what um, Mike Johnson in uh, the House of Representatives said that he didn't want to do, which is vote for another stopgap measure. Uh, believe now we've funded the government until March. Woohoo! And that's supposed to give them all time to come to an agreement. Would you would you like to take a wager with me that um, we will get to the end of February and we will still not have a vote on a full budget? Would you you want to take that vote? I think it's a sucker's bet, frankly. More time. More time to get it done. Well, you know, they certainly didn't have enough time this time around since today was the day that the government was going to start shutting down, a shutdown that was going to continue for the next few weeks until it was complete and total. So now, now that they've got an extra, oh, wait, that's right. They went home. Hmm. They're not even in session next week, are they? Hmm. Well, let's see. And they've got till the end of February, so what does that give them? Maybe three, four weeks? What are the odds? Honestly, seriously, what are the odds that they will come back and they will put their nose to the grindstone and they will come up with this budget deal that makes everybody happy? (laughs) Yeah, I agree. Um, I think that... Here's my prediction. You want my prediction? I think Mike Johnson is going to have to compromise with Democrats, as he has shown a willingness to do. I think he's going to have to compromise with Democrats to get um, the new budget passed. And I think the same people who kicked McCarthy to the curb because he did that are going to go after Mike Johnson. I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene was Kevin McCarthy's strong supporter. She didn't want to kick him out, but now she's talking about maybe it's time to get rid of Mike Johnson. Matt Gates. Oh, shoot. You know what? 
Um, we don't, I need to take a break. I don't have time to get to this, but when we come back. Matt Gates was uh, on CNN. And, oh my gosh. Um, and he had some choice words for Kevin McCarthy in the context of talking about Mike Johnson. Yeah, it's, oh my God, what a man, what a slime ball. We are going to take a break and I'm going to share that sound with you when we come right back. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Oh, we are talking about the news of the day and um, how Mike Johnson um, ran into a brick wall from his far-right members when he tried to sell them on a budget deal that he had worked out with Chuck Schumer, leader of the Senate. And um, Mike Johnson was told that maybe he should delay it. He said he didn't want to do that. Well, that's what they've done. Uh, the budget vote is now put off till March. Or put another way, we have funded the budget at its current levels for another month. And I know that these dedicated professionals, <laughs> dedicated professionals, when they return from their winter vacation, are going to get right to it, and man, oh man, I bet within five days we have a budget. No, that's a lie. I don't think that. I don't think that at all. I think they're going to wait till the very end of February. They're going to be in panic mode again. Uh, they will either do another month's extension, or they'll take a vote with bipartisan support, and then the wolves will come for Mike Johnson. Yes, they will. Um, Matt Gates was on with Abby Phillip last night on CNN, and he talked about Kevin McCarthy. Now, I want you to listen to this because Matt Gates, Ab- Abby starts laughing because Matt Gates talks like Kevin McCarthy just decided one day to up and quit and walk away. Uh, <laughs> Matt, you, do you remember that you were the one who kicked him out of his job? Anyway, listen to this. The other thing is that McCarthy had a different majority, Abby. We had a four-seat majority, but then Kevin took his marbles and went home. We expelled George Santos. Bill Johnson became the president of Youngstown State. And so it's hard to judge Johnson by precisely the same standard as you would judge McCarthy because he doesn't have the same majority McCarthy had, in part because McCarthy left. Well, you... You kill, kicked McCarthy out of his job. You, you forgot just to speaker, include that Just speaker, part. Abby, you there are 434 of us who are willing to do the job without being speaker. Look, I, just one last thing. I mean, look, you're saying you cannot hold Speaker Johnson to the same standard, but he's now passed two continuing resolutions, which you said was unacceptable when Kevin McCarthy did it. Uh, is Speaker Johnson's job in jeopardy, if only for that reason? No. Again, as I said, it wasn't one thing with McCarthy. It was an accumulation of misrepresentations, lies, and the sense that we were being sold out time and again in these negotiations. With Johnson, he's been very clear up front when he has a one-seat majority uh, having to balance the needs of a diverse caucus, trying to get us into a fighting posture. It is my hope, it is my expectation that we get into that fighting posture before taking the third strike of a third continuing resolution so based on my conversation with the, with the speaker. Would be a third strike in your view? That would be the end if he were to do it a third time? I think that's the speaker's view. I don't think the speaker wants to do another continuing resolution. Frankly, I don't even think he wanted to do this one. Now, getting our appropriations bills passed, fighting for those policy objectives that matter to Republican voters, that's how we broaden the majority. We don't broaden our majority by cowering in fear. We have to be bold, and I, I hope this is the speaker who can do that for us. 
Matt Gates, statesman. <laughs> oh, my God. What a joke. Uh, let's go to the phone lines. Jim is calling in. Hello, Jim. How are you today? Hi, Joan. How are you? I'm thinking about the white nationalist uh, Christian party in the United States and how bizarre it is. And what I'm thinking about is because I saw a program this week about the uh, the um, telescope that was engineered and put into our atmosphere. To, it was just an engineering, brilliant thing all the way around. And the people that worked on this telescope were of every color in the rainbow, black, red, mm-hmm. Chinese. It was span, It was uh, international um, cooperation. And just, I mean, it'd be, it'd be, generations that come, Joe, will be able to look at from their grammar school room at galaxies that, that Galilee or anybody else could ever dream about. But this idea that we're going to be, the, the Grand Ole Party, as far as I'm concerned, can have the Christian uh, nationalist. Yep. Because for my, for my money, that is not the direction the United States is going. And I think our president, when he talks about a cure for cancer, he's one of the rare presidents that talks about that. And I think just like this effort to put this telescope into the into our into orbit, we could possibly some generation say, yes, we do have a cure for cancer. Your your family member will be saved, or so on and so forth. Yeah. And it might be one. Of, it might be one of these immigrants coming in, Joan. It, it might, might be very well, mightn't it? Yes, that we want to discard as if they're some kind of rabble. But anyway, but that's what got me thinking about that Christian socialist. And when you see the people involved in this project to get the telescope into the sky, yeah, and what how uh, different backgrounds they had, and so on and so forth, it just shows you what America could be and will be. <laughs> yeah, it will be. It will be, despite the best efforts of these Christian Christian nationalists. It will be, despite the best efforts of white supremacists, and it will be despite um, the efforts of all of the white men in positions of power who are terrified that that they are losing their edge. I agree, Joe. But you got the days count like an Alcatraz. You got an Alcatraz. Just wait to get out. What is it? Is it 287 days I got to cross off the calendar before I can get off of this island? <laughs> you know. But I mean, that's what the year feels like, doesn't it? I mean, it's just yeah. too much, you know. But anyway. I, uh, I, 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 well, I hear you. <laughs> it's going to be, um, it's going to be a rollicking to... 2024, isn't it? Yeah. Yes, Joe. Anyway, take care, Joe. Thank you. Thank, thank you. Thank you for that call, Jim. Um, let's go back to the phone lines. Dennis is calling in from Evanston, Illinois. Hello, Dennis. Hey, Joan. How are you today? I'm good. And how are you? I'm good. I've um, been listening to you all week and also uh, doing my own bit of my own social media uh, craziness, and one of the one of the things that I came across, and I think something really important is um, how to reach those other middle of the line voters. We've been you've been talking about that with some people and stuff, and how do you get there? And really, something that brought it to my attention was 
I had made a post and somebody I know made, uh, responded to it and we had a conversation and he said, I am not a political person. I don't get involved in politics. He goes, but my, my family was doing better before Biden. And that's what I look at. And, and I can tell you that, you know, all the things that I can tell people about what's gone on with Biden and all the good things and, and the infrastructure bill and the chips bill and this, that, and the other thing. And they totally ignore that because when they go to the supermarket or whatever, that loaf of bread that was $2 is now $4. And, and I, you know, I feel that too, but I just know what the important end, end game is. Um, so my question is, how do we make that? better for those people to understand what what they're going to lose even more so And, you know, it's interesting. I was talking to um, the head of the White House Economic Advisors, and I asked specifically about this perception people have that somehow they're not as well off. And he said, well, you know, um, if you if you it depends on your point of view, like if like before the pandemic, uh, bread was probably two dollars and 50 cents. And then during the pandemic and in the aftermath and with a little bit of inflation, suddenly bread was much higher. And now with all the economic policies and economic successes of the Biden administration, the price of bread is down again. You know, like maybe it hit $5 during at its height, and now it's down to, say, $3. So if you remember paying $5 for bread, $3 feels pretty darn good to you. But if you're re- remembering back all the way like four or five years ago when bread was two fifty, then you still, you're, mentally, you still feel like you're in some kind of a financial hole. And so he said it's that's kind of where they've discovered um, people's feelings about this are coming from. And I think that we have to keep reminding people we had the worst economy that we had had in decades. There was no job growth. There was very little job creation. Um, the economy was in bad shape. There was no support for the middle class or union workers. That was what life was like under Trump. And sometimes I think people get confused because Trump will make a speech and he'll just tell blatant lies. Oh, you know, the country never did better than when I was president. And unless you really look at the facts, you might if if all you're doing is listening to the speech, you assume somebody like that is probably not lying to you. And that's what your takeaway is when anybody who really fact checks. I mean, the country was a mess under Trump internationally. Foreign policy was a mess under Trump. He wanted to pull us out of NATO. If if he had been president, you know, Putin would be in Ukraine. I mean, we've got to remind people that no matter how rosy a picture Donald Trump paints of his four years in office, it was anything but. It was dark as a coal mine at midnight. Um, oh yeah, no, and people don't don't can't can't see that, and and the thing is, even if you like, people talk about their four hundred one ks or whatever. Uh, the the whole thing was that you know the wealthy people were buying up stuff, and so that was making things a little better for you. But if you do it at at the at the local level and do things at the at the middle class, we're going to be really great if you get that middle class back because. Any country in history that has lost its middle class has lost what they've had, and it's become a mess for sometimes hundreds of years. And, yeah. and I don't 
want to see that from the United States. But some of these people are so blind. Um, I don't. I just don't. I don't get it. Uh, I can't understand it. Um, no matter what, uh, some people that I that I interact with that were like old high school friends that I haven't seen in forty or fifty years. But for some reason, have bought into the entire Trumpian idea that you know that Trump was a, a utopian when it was absolutely so far from it. It wasn't even funny. So I don't know. Um, but I think we just have to keep plugging away and, yeah. and make people. But even when I say, some oh of the my things goodness, that I hang on, a, hang on them, a second, Dennis. Uh, we are way over. I am blowing through a commercial break. Oh. I'm going to have to cut our conversation okay. short. I apologize. Um, uh, thank you, Dennis, for the conversation and the call. Very interesting on both. But we are going to take a break and be back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. It is Friday, and you know what we do? We spend the first half of the show talking with you about the news of the day, the news of the week. And I bring you up to speed on uh, various issues and some sound that I didn't get to share with you <clears throat> Excuse me, earlier in the week. Um, uh, wanna, um, I, I opened the show today talking about Benjamin Netanyahu and about how he has come out publicly and said that he does not uh, intend to support nor will he work for a two-state solution, which um, is really very sad news. Um, Illinois Senator Tammy Duckworth has um, come out and condemned him quite severely. Um, and now we have um, a readout of a call that the president had this morning with Benjamin Netanyahu. Um, they talked about securing uh, the hostages and they talked about the Israeli military efforts. Um, the president um, thanked them for permitting shipments of flour to the Palestinian people uh, directly through some of the support organizations um, on the ground. Um, and they talked about some other things, and uh, the president discussed Israel's responsibility, even as it maintains military pressure on Hamas and its leaders, their responsibility to reduce civilian harm and protect the innocent. The president also discussed his vision for a more durable peace and security for Israel, uh, fully integrated within the region and a two-state solution with Israel's security guaranteed. Apparently, that's what Netanyahu is saying, is that somehow Israel will be less secure if there is, if the Palestinians have their own state, which, of course, um, to most people makes, not only does it not make sense, it seems the opposite is true. That as long as there is no Palestinian state, there will always be unrest and um, unhappiness, unhappiness. Um, let's go. We're, uh, we're going to go back to the phone lines before we move on to other topics. George is calling in from the south side. Hey, George, how are you today? Oh, I'm doing OK. Hope you're doing well, Joan. And um, we, I think your loyal listeners, we don't say it often enough, but we value what you do and and you yourself very highly. You're well, thank you. You're a brilliant voice in a wilderness of obfuscation and propaganda. Well, that's very kind of you. 
Very well, kind of you to say. Maybe, but it's the truth. Anyway, in a related topic, I'd like to mention a name that all of us should remember. Dan Marburger. Okay. He was the principal of Perry High School who did his best to talk down the shooter and shield his students from death or injury mm -hmm. and who got shot up by the shooter for his trouble and passed away from his wounds oh. in Iowa last Sunday. Now, see, um, even as well-informed a person as you are didn't know about that. And for maybe a little less than 24 hours, it was a news item. And then it faded in Iowa because it was all about Trump, 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 and caucuses, caucuses, caucuses. So we have a guy here who has yeah. regularly denigrated those who serve the public. If you join the military, well, you're a sucker. Um, he, he threatened with his own son with disinheritance if he enlisted. He publicly humiliated a gold star mother and father who were grieving the loss of their gallant young officer's son in combat, uh, which was made easier for him because they were brown people whose ancestors came from South India. But I would just like to say that I would wish that Democrats and people of good faith in Iowa would organize and have large posters, signs they would carry to any public appearance by Governor Kim Reynolds in particular, the senators, statewide officials, hold up those signs that say, Dan Mer excuse me, Dan Marburger died for your sins. Yeah. I mean, they all push unlimited firearm ownership, little or no licensing, easy carry, et cetera. And the reality of this country is that Dan Marburger's name has already faded and maybe only news geeks like me are paying attention. But for a totally misanthropic, psychotic individual like Trump to keep getting covered when a genuine American hero is just discarded by the roadside in less than a day is just says how wrong things are with our country. Yeah, and you know, I'm going to, I, I generally try to not include his latest ramblings on this on this show but you make a really good point and frankly this is what i was also talking with uh, jennifer schulze and mark jacob about when we talked about the iowa caucuses the iowa caucuses were unimportant at best it was a contest for second place among two people neither of whom have a shot at even being the vice president and yet it was such a big blowout news event and you know we were talking about all the other stories that were either given very short shrift or ignored altogether because of this big blowout on a on a story that is essentially meaningless to the american people and I want you to keep an eye on this show because I want to try to be more aware of that. I don't want to ignore what's really important and especially not what's important and what's good simply because somebody is doing or saying something outrageous. So I want you to hold my feet to the fire on this. All right. Agreed. And if, and if I you think I stray, I want you to tell me that, George. 
I will, I will, but I'll do it kindly. <laughs> they, well, I appreciate that because I can be very <laughs> sensitive. Yeah, well, you're a lady, a gentle lady, <laughs> and you will be treated as such. But the thing is, is all of the major media in our country have been covering these these non-debate, non-event gatherings of candidates who are going nowhere for like a year as if what they say and do in these ridiculous gatherings has any meaning whatsoever. Everybody knows who's going to get the nomination. Why are they covering this at all? You know, what? why didn't they just have maybe each unit or each outfit have one reporter giving periodic reports from Iowa. I mean, that's why, as you pointed out earlier, there's so many people in this country, both on the right and in the middle, that just have no clue how much Trump lies because the major media never challenge him or his people when they say lies. They just let it go. And so how are, how are people who are immersed in trying to live their own lives, have two jobs in a household, raise the kids, get to and from work, they don't have time to stay up on politics, and mm-hmm. and we and so we rely on the major news organizations to tell us the truth and the facts, and they have not been doing it in this country for at least since the '80s, as far as I'm concerned. So there's a whole lot of people out there who just don't know. Yep. Well, thank you for the call, George. I appreciate it. I appreciate the discussion. Um, We are going to take a real quick break. We're going to be back with more calls and more news stories right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. A couple of things that I want to uh, share with you as we are moving on. We talked about what was going on with the budget. Uh, Nothing. They've kicked that can down till March 1st. And um, after Mike Johnson passes a budget in a bipartisan way, he will probably be kicked to the curb himself. Uh, There's another issue that we've talked about, and that's immigration. And there are people, even within the Republican Party, who really want to pass legislation on immigration. But the majority of Republicans don't want to have said they will tank anything Any legislation that comes down about immigration, they're going to vote no on it because they want that to be an issue they can use in the 2024 election cycle. It's too good a talking point. We don't want to solve the problem. Then we can't talk about the problem. And if we solve the problem, how can we blame the problem on Joe Biden if it looks like the problem's on its way to being fixed? You know, um, Dan Crenshaw, who is a Republican from Texas, um, decided that his far right colleagues uh, were really not doing their job when they were saying that they're going to vote no on any kind of border deal. This was not um, an interview that he gave on CNN or MSNBC. He was um, talking to reporters just outside the Capitol building yesterday and this is what he had to say. We get meaningful border policy changes. And for whatever reason people come up with, they don't want it anymore. Um, that's going to be a pretty tough position to stand by. So, there's a, there's, so they're saying a couple things. Right? Well, we, we'll never vote for it if it's attached to Ukraine. Really? Like we get meaningful. 
full border policy for Ukraine? You're not going to vote for that? So you want Russia to win more than you want border policy changes? That's a tough one. You defend that. Um, some people say, oh, well, you know, Biden wants it now because it's helpful to him politically. Okay. I want border security. That's, that's, what, I, that's what I told my constituents that I would do for me. So if we can get that deal, that's, that's in the brain. Yeah, a little bit hard to hear because, again, it was kind of uh, outside. It wasn't studio sound. But um, he is a little bit dumbfounded by his colleagues who don't want to vote on any kind of uh, changes uh, in border policy. Because why? Hmm. Um, Rajna Krishnamurthy, the congressman from Illinois, was uh, speaking with Jake Tapper yesterday, and they touched on this same topic. Listen to this. I hope that we come to some compromise uh, on this particular issue because we have to have, obviously, order at the border. But on the other hand, when I talk to some Republicans privately, what they tell me is that um, some folks want to leave it as an election issue. They want this to be something that Donald Trump can run on. And so even if Democrats were to compromise, um, put forward a reasonable suggestion for what to do at the border, they won't take yes for an answer. I'm talking about Republicans. And so that 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 would be uh, very, very disturbing. And um, I hope that's not where this ends up. Because as you know, Ukrainian aid is also in the balance. So is aid for Israel. So is aid for uh, the Gaza Strip. Yeah. Everybody's puzzled why... Um the Republicans don't want to vote on this. And, you know, Raja and Dan Crenshaw, one of their own, called them out. And I think we need to remember that as the election cycle comes around, when we hear Republicans complaining <clears throat> that Democrats aren't doing enough for border security, somebody needs to ask. They need to say, oh, by the way, um, were you one of the ones who said that no matter what legislation came down, you weren't going to vote for it? You know, did you do that so that you could stand in front of us today and complain about Democrats on this issue? What did you do to fix this issue? Let's hope that happens. <clears throat> Let's go back to the phone line. Steve is calling in from the Gold Coast. Hey, Steve, how are you today? Yes, uh, I wanted to raise a couple of points. And, and I agree with the previous caller in terms of a more substantive analysis with regard to how we covered the news and what's going on in this country. Uh, the, the fact is that once every four years we have a presidential election cycle, and for news outlets, it's a huge boondoggle in terms of uh, profits because people tune in and they can cover the horse race. And, and coming out of 2020 especially, I mean, you know, we were all stuck in our homes, the height of COVID, and 2020, it turns out, uh, had a greater turnout in terms of the number, the percentage of the people who voted in this country than any election since the year 1900. And so we were all paying attention to what was going on, and that's what they're hoping for again in 2024. Mm -hmm. You know, they can get a lot of viewership. That's the bottom line. That's what you charge. That's the basis upon which you charge advertisers. And obviously, that's, that serves the bottom line. These are corporations. These are not, not, not. Nonprofits, okay? So, you know, they have an agenda. I mean, you know, those of us who are from Chicago, we remember when, you know, Carol Maureen tried that great experiment 20 years ago. Uh-oh. Um, this has been happening a lot with Steve. His phone has dropped. So let's just go to Joliet. Let's go to Joliet right now. Brian is calling in from Joliet. Hey, Brian. Uh, hi. I hope you're doing well. You too. Um, thank you. Uh, <clears throat> well, I phoned... Uh, uh, 
because uh, first I wanted to say that I, uh, too, uh, support uh, the uh, two-state uh, uh, solution for Palestine, uh, yet uh, almost uh, everyone knows that Netanyahu is a fascist. Uh, but that's not the main reason I phoned. Uh, uh, I would like to discuss a little bit on climate change. Sure. Uh, forecasts. Uh, uh, spring and uh, uh, through part of the summer for uh, uh, 2023 predicted warmer uh, than in the past. Uh, yet, uh, the, uh, since uh, before Halloween, it's been frigid temperatures. And I wonder if uh, you, as uh, with uh, uh, your uh, who's on your show, I first hit him at least a couple of years ago, Edwin Eisendrap. Uh, he had on uh, meteorologist Tom Skilling a, a couple times, and I was wondering if you can get uh, Tom Skilling uh, to discuss these uh, developments on uh, your program. Well, I would love to have Tom Skilling on, and um, maybe once he retires. The problem with is, and I actually um, suggested that Edwin uh, reach out to Tom Skilling because Edwin's on Saturdays. And the problem I have is that, as you know, Tom Skilling isn't just somebody who shows up right before airtime and reads off a forecast that somebody else puts together. I mean, he's there all day long working like a dog. And in the past, when I've tried to get him on, it's very difficult to get him on. And generally, he only has a few minutes because he's up to his ears in it. I love talking to Tom Skilling. I have known him. Well, you know, people don't uh, people remember me, my TV years from Channel 7 and Channel 5. But I actually started my first TV job in Chicago was on Channel 9 before I went to Channel 7. I wasn't there for very long, um, but I was um, I was working at Channel 9 as a reporter and fill-in anchor. And so I've known Tom Skilling for a very long time, and I adore him. I absolutely adore him. And I would love to have him on every day. He's He's great when it comes to this. I'll try reaching out to him again. But you know, it's um, it's next month is when he's planning to retire, and um, I might have a better chance of getting him to sit down and talk to me at uh, at length after he no longer has his Monday through Friday responsibilities. Well, you know, with these uh, kinds of uh, frigid temperatures, uh, uh, I'm very uh, concerned, and uh, a few people are uh, discussing the uh, plight of the homeless. Uh, and uh, people, you know, who are forced to live out in tents, and uh, hopefully uh, no one's getting hypothermia because uh, I think it's a shame uh, that, uh, you know, we have all these billionaires out there and uh, and uh, multi-multi-millionaires, and why anyone should have to perish out in the cold is, uh, uh, makes, uh, is in, in, inhuman. Yeah. Yesterday I was talking to Doug Schenkelberg, who's with the Chicago Coalition for the Homeless, and he talked about, you know, some of the warming centers and usually shelters for the homeless. And not everybody knows this. They're open at night, but you can't stay there during the day. So they'll open their doors in the evening, but then by usually no later than 9 a.m. in the morning, everybody at the shelter has to be gone. And that's true of most shelters. So he's trying to work with shelters to get them 
to stay open 24-7, and some of the warming centers also, he is trying to get them to stay open um, 24-7, so that exactly what you're describing doesn't happen. But I agree with you. It's, uh, it's, there's, you know, you've got a, you've got these billionaires like Mackenzie Bezos, or I don't know what her, that's not her last name, Jeff Bezos' wife, who's like spending her time now giving away money. You know, I, I, supporting great organizations is terrific, but what would stop her from buying up a big plot of unused land with the permission of the local government officials and building, you know, um, 40 tiny houses. I mean, maybe 40 people is a drop in the bucket, but it's 40 people who are no longer on the streets. You know, I mean, I, 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 I understand it's easier. Well, you think that's a good organization. They good, they do good work. They have the infrastructure already in place, you know, that I'll just give money to them. But, you know, I'd love to see somebody with really deep pockets just not go to an organization, just Try to fix the problem yourself. You know, find some vacant land and build a manufacturing plant. You know, if you're rich enough, it doesn't have to make a profit anytime soon. Build, I don't know, make bicycles. I don't know. But, you know, put together a plant where you can hire, you know, 50 or 100 people from the neighborhood. You know, give those people a good paying jobs you know, that's the kind of everybody who talks about, well, you know, we need investment. And people talk like if it doesn't come from the government, that it, there's no way it's going to happen. And we all know, well, even if the government is well-intentioned, the bureaucracy means that it's years in the making before anything real happens. I don't well, know. If I win the lottery and I've got like a gajillion dollars, I'm going to try to work with local officials and maybe I can't fix everything, but maybe one neighborhood, maybe one neighborhood, I could make a difference. Well, even one saving one person's life is very important. But in these kinds of temperatures, and there's uh, not just one, but uh, several who uh, are billionaires or multi-multi-millionaires, and it doesn't have to be like the Taj Mahal, mm-hmm. but they can easily, uh, uh, you know, purchase some... Uh, Buildings to make sure that no one uh, dies of hypothermia. All that yeah. kind of weather. Expand, you know, expand the shelter place, shelter spaces. And um, I'm not saying that you do it in a vacuum. You work with the people in the neighborhood. You get there, in you know, to sign on, and um, you work with the local officials. I mean, if I were a billionaire and I I went to an alder person and I said, you know. I want to spend $25 million in your ward. I want to buy land. I want to build a factory. I want to hire people. I can, is there an alderman in this in, in the Chicago City Council that would say, oh, no, not in my backyard? I don't believe that. I, I don't uh, think so either, and I don't see how they could prevent it. Uh, well, you'd want to get, you know, you don't want to just shove something down people's throats. You want buy-in. But I think it I think it would be doable. So I'm not going to I'm going to do it anonymously. So you will never know. OK, you'll never know it was me because um, I would. But I, I think that would be an interesting social experiment like Mark Cuban. I mean, he's got a, a gazillion dollars and he looked around and he said, you know, there's a need for low cost drugs. And he created an Internet pharmacy. 
you can't get every drug in the world there, but a lot of the drugs that a lot of people need, he cut out the middlemen, he cut out the pharmacy managers, he bought from the drug companies, and he sells direct to the public at a reduced price. That's somebody who saw a problem and is trying to fix it. And I, you know, if I had that kind of money, I hope that's the kind of person I'd be too. Uh, Joan, uh, did you start? Uh, you said you worked at uh, WGN uh, uh, mm-hmm. uh, TV first. Was that in uh, 1982? You're testing my memory, aren't you? Well, you, I I, you were, I know I was 27 uh, years old, but I don't. I suppose I could do some math here and try to figure out what the year was. Um, well, uh, you were on uh, Channel Seven uh, Chicago uh, around 1983, 84. I remember that, and then you. Moved on to five. I never knew you were on Channel Nine. Yeah, but it, <laughs> it was because if you blinked, you you missed me. I was. It was oh. a very. Uh, it was a brief tenure, shall we say? I loved Channel Nine. It, they were such nice people, and they were really sweet to me. But you know, I really wanted to work for um, a, a more major kind of news operation. I was really hungry to do that. So when the opportunity arose, Channel Nine let me go, and Channel Seven scooped me up. Um, I got I got a break now. We got to get to uh, the news. But thank you, thank you for the call, Brian. I appreciate it. Well, thank you for taking my call and uh, stay warm. <laughs> I will try. You too. Thanks. We're going to take a break for news. We're going to be back with more of your calls and the news of the day right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT eight twenty. It is Friday. We spend the first half of every Friday talking to you, taking your calls, uh, getting your feedback on the important news stories of the day and the week. Um, we were we've been having some trouble recently uh, staying connected to Steve from the Gold Coast. He dropped out again, uh, but he has called us back from a different phone line. This time will be better. Uh, so, Steve, I don't know if you uh, you probably should start at the beginning of your remarks again, uh, since it was a few minutes ago. <laughs> Well, I just wanted to make the point that I, I, you know, those of us who want substantive news, uh, you know, the reality is that it's a business, and, and unfortunately, they they have a model in mind in terms of profitability. And, and those of us who are old enough, you know, to remember, it's about twenty years ago now that Carol Marine decided to try that great experiment over at CBS, you know, which yeah. they sort of did away where it with, was going to be know, where non-spec. we're not going to just do headlines and superficial news. We're going to give you, you know, serious news, and it's going to be in depth. And it, it, nobody exactly. wanted to watch? Exactly. I mean, you know, we're, we're just sort of stuck in this paradigm. I mean, I, with all due respect to, you know, uh, uh, Mr. Skilling and others, you know, uh, a lot of people contend that I don't need an analysis of why the weather is what it is. I just need to know what it's going to be like today and tomorrow. And, you know, and mm-hmm. I don't and, and, you know, a lot of people don't uh, don't necessarily think that the sports is that important. I know others do. Uh, but the point being that, you know, what it's not that all of this is covered. It's what isn't covered because other things are covered. And, and what gets excluded is the point. Um, you know, keep in mind that uh, on a national level, you know, we gave the, these airwaves to before cable and everything else. We gave these airwaves to these big companies. And, you know, they, as, a, as a sort of give back and afterthought, they created news programming, you know, for, as a public service. Well, it turns out that decades later, these are immensely profitable entities. People like to tune in. 
And and that's why some of the anchors, you know, you know, um, uh, Jennings, Peter Jennings, who was making over $20 million a year, you know, hosting the nightly news over at ABC at one point. Um, and so that, that should tell you something about, you know, where where Americans tune in and what they want to hear. So, yeah, they, they want to co- they want to cover the horse race because it's a hugely important uh, it's hugely important to their bottom line. In 2020, more people participated as a percentage of the voting population in that election than at any time since the year 1900. So, you know, they're hoping for a repeat of that in 2024. And therefore, they're going to cover the horse race, no matter what we think about it. You know, despite the fact that, yeah, what, what Republicans were going to do in Iowa was a foregone conclusion. Uh, what, what was the point of covering it? Well, it turns out that some people want to watch it. And there are plenty of people who, who want to provide you analysis. And despite the fact that there was nothing there that was going to be a revelation, you know, they all, mm-hmm. they all, they all covered it as if it were, uh, you know, early November election night. You know, I know. I mean, uh, it's just ridiculous, but you know, people tuned in, and you know, it, it's hard to you know get that kind of a ship to change course. You know, yeah, that's just, kind of what Jennifer and Mark said. Why did they do that? Because it's what they always do. They have every election. You know, this is how we do it. We bring in the panel. We bring in the people for the numbers. We create this big set. We do it that way because that's how we do it. That's how we always do it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and in terms of some of the issues, you know, for uh, for things like uh, resolving the budget impasse, you know, I think, you know, it's political suicide. You know, the closer we get to the election, I mean, Republicans do not want to look as if they're responsible for shutting down the government. You know, from a political standpoint, it's just ridiculous. But that just goes to show you how fringe elements within their party are, are seem to be committed to political suicide. You know, I mean, if you shut down the government, you know, heading into the summer or into the early fall, and, and the country says, okay, well, whose idea was it to do this? Okay, well, yeah, we, we blame the Republicans. And they've been blamed for this before because they're the only party that does this. You know, Democrats realize, you know, we disagree on some things, but we need the government to function. So, you know, we're there, we're, we may oppose certain things, but we're not going to oppose, you know, a, a resolution which funds the, the necessity that is the United States government. Whereas mm-hmm. Republicans love to play with this issue as if it were something to be played with. There's nothing to be gained by this, you know, but, but you get this, this radical element, the Boberts and the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the Jim Jordans, you know, the nutcases in their party that, you know, can't see beyond their own nose because they have no future in that party outside of, you know, that fringe element of the Republican Party. They have no future in terms of national politics outside of that. So they can afford to be crazy, and, and their followers will continue to follow them long after they're out of office. You know, but for the rest of us, you know, we want sanity, and that's where I think you know a, a lot of Republicans are sort of between a rock and a hard place because many of them despise Donald Trump. They think he's insane. But to question Donald Trump or to withhold your endorsement of Donald Trump means that you now jeopardize your standing. Yeah, you exactly. So you know, it's not out of love of Donald Trump; it's out of fear of Donald Trump and his completely. Completely. I mean, there are I believe, you know, there's a small loyal group that does love Donald Trump. But the vast majority of anybody with half a brain or more um, either is quiet or supportive of Donald Trump because of fear. Absolutely. And and last point, you know, I mean, I know that all of us want to see him gone. Uh, Barring a jail cell and, and even possibly after having served some time. The reality is that until Donald Trump dies, you know, he is sort of the king of MAGA and MAGAism, and he will be a kingmaker in that party. So in other words, long after he decides to stop running, whoever he decides to put his arm around 
is going to get garner you know a huge advantage within the republican party and that that unfortunately is a shame because again that that party needs to remake itself but i don't know how they go about doing that because you know the, the the people running against donald trump on the one hand want to critique him yet on the other hand want to embrace him but why because they can't alienate his supporters and you know like i said it's it's a party caught between a rock and a hard place that needs desperately to remake itself uh, yes uh, you know you complete uh, complete uh, agreement here on that thank you steve thanks Take for care. finding a line that works for us um hang on to that phone wherever it is call in on that <laughs> phone in the future okay Take care. i appreciate it thanks for the call um let's go to our good friend bobby who is calling in from indiana no friday is complete unless i talk to my bobby well, I ain't gonna be talking to you today, Johnny. I'm I'm stuck in the snow here. Uh you snowed in? Why am I ever? Yeah. I'm, I'm talking I'm talking to you from inside a snow globe. <laughs> so, oh boy. Uh, yeah, and, uh, and it's uh it's kinda settled down, but they say we're supposed to get kid again overnight. And if that happens it'll be the most snow. Well, I've been out where I'm at since 96, and uh, if that happens, it will be the most snow I've ever seen out here. Wow. So uh, we'll see yeah. what happens with that by morning. But it's, uh, well, it's, it, it knocked the furnace out. So, uh, you know, it must be pretty deep on the roof, I'll tell you that. Well, you know, I am... Um... I usually try to keep track of these things. I didn't realize that the snow was supposed to come back last night. And I woke up to a winter wonderland. Yeah, well, uh, I I guess it depends on where you're at. I guess uh, my sister lives in Valparaiso. And she said, well, they got about four or five inches. And then the report is that the Michigan City, between Michigan City and New Buffalo, were supposed to be the hardest hit. And I would say that that's a very good uh, conclusion they reached, uh, just based by me. I'm down due south of town, uh, about three miles. I'm right between Westville and Michigan City on on the main highway here. Mm-hmm. And uh, so uh, it has uh, it has done its damage, and it's still spitting it out a little. But I'm waiting for it to pick up again. Well, do you do you have enough food in the house, or is your furnace working okay? Oh, not, no, the furnace went out a little while ago. Oh man, I hate that. Our furnace what went out when it hit like negative ten. I guess there's something about those super cold temperatures that really put a strain on furnaces and uh and ours went out as well. Luckily we were able to get it um working again in a relatively short time. I think one of the intake or outtake um pipes uh got iced over and once we were it was okay, freed yeah. up we were able to get it get it back online again but you know that's not when you want to be outside messing with the pipes no. well mine is mine is the fact that there's too much snow over the top of Jim uh on this place and uh i got a guy that can shovel it off however his starter is dead on his truck so he won't be able to get out till next week 
Hmm. Good however, grief. however, I happen to have a uh, auxiliary furnace in my air conditioner unit, so I do have heat. Oh, thank God! So it's not a total, uh, yeah. total waste. As it, as yeah, it we 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 had a gas we had a gas fireplace. That um, we know, of course, it has an electric starter because uh, we had the power go out too. I don't know if it was like a one-two punch for us. The power went out and the and the furnace quit working. It was just glorious, um, but we were able to pry the glass off the front of the gas fireplace, light it up, and then put it back together. You know, you yeah. get really creative when you're stressed. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, speaking of creative. And I think this is something we can watch and figure it's going to be happening almost daily now that we're, we're because we're we're now we're into the year, and I've noticed um, I'm getting signs of more visible signs of the crazies popping mm. up. Uh, there's another near me. Another new flag just came out uh, at a place. Trump flag. Never no, not he's uh, he's kind of he's being kind of coy, but I know it's not a good flag when you see it at least uh, anymore. It's bright, the bright yellow one with the snake. I don't know what that means. I think it's the "Don't Tread on Me," huh? And it it's it, 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 I think it's a state flag from New England. From the you know going back to the Revolutionary War days and things, but um, but it's used now by the by the super right wingers, and so. uh, But I'm thinking you're going to see more of that. You're going to see more of the Trumpy flags and all kinds of that stuff as we go into the year. You watch and see in your area. I'll bet it'll be the same way. Well, it's going to be really interesting because, you know, in 2016, um, when Trump ran against Hillary Clinton, we went to uh, see my family in Ohio and we drove. And when we got off the turnpike to drive, you know, uh, the distance uh, that it takes us to get to their neighborhood, we saw Trump sign after Trump sign after Trump sign. And we looked at each other and we were like, this is not good. This is not good. It kind of was a a little bit of foreshadowing of what finally ended up happening. So keep us apprised of that, because, you know, sometimes I think um, those how many signs you see, where you see them, who they're for. I think that's just about as reliable as a lot of the polling we get. So, Bobby, you're going to be on sign duty going forward for Indiana. Well, all I can say is. If if. Indeed, there are more of us than more of them. Then it's, uh, I sure hope to hell that there are more of us that actually get out and do what they need to do come uh, November than than them. So we can, uh, you know, because, and that's the thing. How long long do you think uh, the Democrats can do this in the future? Because uh, uh, these type of people, they're going to be with us for years, 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 yeah. And they're, they're like they're like termites. They're they're, <laughs> they're going to keep they're going to keep eating away at the foundations of this country. And you know, if 
as long as they can, it, you know, you just got to keep, you got to keep spraying for them, Joan. You got to keep spraying. Yeah. Bobby, thank you for the call. Um, I think, um, I think I have to take a break. I'm sometimes on Fridays, I get confused. Um, whether or not I've taken them, but I'm pretty sure I need to take a break. So, uh, yes, thank you, Paul. <laughs> uh, we will take a break and be back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. It is Friday. We talk about the news of the day for the first half of the show. Um, I have been uh, reading your texts and trying to respond to as many of them <clears throat> as I can. Um, I do want to go back to the phone lines. Ron from Chicago has been waiting very patiently to join our conversation. Hello, Ron. How are you today? Hello. Yes. Uh, just a reminder that uh, first class post- postage increases on Sunday. It so, does? So, oh, yes. Two cents. <laughs> two more cents for, on, after Sunday. <laughs> well, that's. Do our, I hope our forever stamps. It says forever, and I'm counting on that, that oh, it, yeah, they'll no, still be good. Yeah. Oh, yeah, they'll be good forever. <laughs> uh, Donald Trump uh, was very upset this week because uh, the uh, militant Nazi groups are not given credit cards by the uh, major banks. So no. He's, uh, oh, yes. poor Nazis. Yeah, to give him a hanky. Yes. Uh, so he said when he, when he becomes president, he's going to change all that. Uh, and uh, I'm trying to picture the uh, leaders of the uh, Nazi groups, the leaders of the white supremacists and leaders of the Christian nationals all together in the same room. You know, they'll be like a a Mel Brooks movie watching all that. Yeah, really. Uh, Sometimes I think that this whole next year is going to be a Mel Brooks movie. (laughs) And uh, and, uh, the uh, migrants that are coming here uh, from Texas, they all have to come, go back to Texas, don't they, for their court cases? How is that going to be handled? Uh, that's a very good question. Yeah. How, how, how are they going to get there? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So we have to see what happens. I don't know. That's going to be another, another problem for the mayor. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I understand. You know, he was a Cook County commissioner. Um, but that's a very different and much smaller, more limited job than being mayor of Chicago. I mean, I've had local experts tell me that they honestly don't think being mayor of Chicago is a one-person job, that it's just, there's just too much. So uh, just like we saw with Lori Lightfoot, there's a huge learning curve if you have not been at um, politics at this level before. So I'm... I'm willing to give him some more time to get his uh, feet under him, but I've, I've got to tell you that I'm seeing some things that I, that I think are disturbing. There was just a social media report of a reporter who was trying to ask the mayor a question, and one of the mayor's aides, like, shoved the reporter away. And, you know, you just, you got to talk to an aide like that. They may have their heart in the right place. But, you know, now the story is reporter gets shoved and, you know, they asked Freedom of Information for some emails and what they got back from the city was so redacted as to be worthless. And then they obtained emails. This was um, TTW. 
they got the same emails from a local activist organization, and they were able to go public with what the email said, which was like the poor conditions in the migrant shelters. And then after they did that, then the Johnson administration gave them the emails again unredacted. But you know what? That shouldn't have had to happen that way. So, you know, Brandon Johnson has to have a sit down with his aides and um, somebody has to be in a position to say this is not who we said we were going to be. So this can't be who we are. We've got to be better. And there has to be some transparency. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, people will forgive a lot of things. You know, they will um, they'll forgive if you say you made a mistake and you want to fix it, or somebody did something they weren't authorized to do, and we're going to fix it. People understand that, but just trying to hide and and um, and and muddy the waters, and the people don't like that. And I'm one of those people who doesn't like that. What, what's the word? Obfuscate. Yes. yes that's muddy the, word. the waters. <laughs> All right. Okay. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Thanks for the call. Um, you know, one of my uh, listeners just texted in now. Um, Donald Trump ran this ad where I don't know if they got somebody who sounds like Paul Harvey or whether they recreated Paul Harvey's voice with AI. And it's this whole quasi religious thing. God, it's called God created Trump. And it's. You know, we needed, the country needed a strong hand, so God created Trump. And it goes on and on like that. It's really obnoxious. And uh, the Lincoln Project found that they couldn't tolerate that ad either. So they did a version they call not God created Trump, but God created a dictator. And they ref- they basically copied the voice. They copied the words only they put their own spin on it. And one of my uh, listeners just texted in, hey, did you hear about this? Well, I played it earlier in the week, but I want to share this Lincoln Project ad with you again. Enjoy this. And on the eighth day, God looked down on his planned paradise and said, I need a man to test the will and goodness of a free people. So God made a dictator. God said, I need a man who failed in everything but theft and broken promises to live in a golden palace and convince the poor he serves their needs. So God made a dictator. God said, I need a wicked man to lead the common folk with hatred and fear. So God made a dictator. God said, I need a corrupt man who is above the law and immune from justice. So God made a dictator. God said, I need a man who will use violence to seize power. So God made a dictator. God said, I need a man whose followers will call black white, call evil good, and call criminals hostages. So God made a dictator. God said, I need his political party to obey without question, and the press fear his wrath. So God made a dictator. God said, I need a cruel man who uses his power and position to punish and harm his opposition. So God made a dictator. God said, I need a man who breaks the faith of even his most godly followers and leads them to idolatry, place him above me. So God made a dictator. And then God said, I sent this man to test you, and until you cast him down, you have failed. So God made a dictator. I sent this man to test you, and until you put him down, I have failed. Yep. 2024, kids, get up off the couch. we got a lot to do. I'm going to give you a little bit of a respite for the next 30 minutes. We are going to be talking animal shelters and pet of the month. 
Um, but that's then it's going to be back to business, buddy, right after that. So uh, let's take a break and uh, we will return right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. It is one of our most delightful segments here on the afternoon show. Once a month, we talk to a representative from anti-cruelty and our beloved Craig Badagowski from Mark Drugs. And we talk about adoption. We talk about rescue. We talk about keeping pets healthy and on uh, the uh, WCPT page. Oh, I don't know if we got a chance to fix it. Oh, I don't think so. Um, we still have last month's pet of the month, uh, who was Ajax. He, Ajax has been adopted. We have a new pet of the month who will hopefully be on our website very shortly. And uh, that delightful boy is Tank. Um, I'd like to introduce you to somebody new who is joining us for the first time. Lane Anderson is with Anti-Cruelty. Tracy is out sick today. Lane very bravely decided to step up. And Lane, Craig and I will be very gentle with you today. Thanks for doing oh, great. this. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Oh, we're We're glad you're here. And Craig, Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year, Joan. Great to be with you. Thank you so much for highlighting the importance of uh, adoption. Yes, and I love your ads about adopt, don't shop. They're exactly how I feel about this. Elaine, talk about um, our new pet of the month, Tank. I believe you referred to him as a big meatball. (laughs) He is one chunky meatball. Um, He is a six-year-old American bulldog. Um, he's about 82 pounds, so he's a big boy, and he came to us early January on the 2nd. Um, he was a transfer from Calumet City Animal Control. Um, he was found as a stray over there, and so we took him in since we had room for him. Um, since we've had him, we've learned two things about him. He loves food and treats, and he loves people. Um, he is an absolute socialite, um, and he has a huge fan club at the shelter right now. Um, yeah, he's a, he's a very good boy. Um, he is doing really well with the staff. Um, he does really well on the leash. He walks really well, kind of stays side by side with you. We do notice that he is a little bit timid of staircases. So if someone has a lot of stairs, they might have to help him with that. Um, but otherwise he's, he does really well. He does pull on the leash a little bit when he sees other dogs just out of curiosity, but, um, he's easily redirected with his favorite treats. So, um, he's been a delight to have at the shelter for us. Um, and we're just waiting to see who the lucky family is to take him home. Now, I just want to make sure people understand. You said he was found as a stray and dogs who are found as strays, Generally, there's an effort made, if it's possible, to try to find the family they came from. It isn't just, you know, here's a stray, we're going to immediately put them up for adoption. So I'm assuming that Tank does not have a microchip. So he actually does, and Calumet City Animal Control went through all of those processes to try and locate his family. 
Um, they typically either try to make contact through phone or email, and if they don't receive a response through that line of communication, they will send a letter in the mail. Um, it's the same process for Chicago Animal Control here, but um, they did not receive responses from them. So um, we went ahead and moved forward with his next steps, which was to be made available for public adoption. And I know sometimes because I do follow, I follow a lot of shelters and a lot of a lot of um, the county um, shelters and private shelters. And it's very sad, but sometimes even if a family can be tracked down, they don't necessarily want their pet back, and which always makes me incredibly sad, but sometimes sure. lead me to believe that sometimes I don't know why if people decide that they can't handle an animal anymore, why more people don't just directly um, bring that animal to a shelter and let the animal go. How is it more humane to let an animal out on the street. I mean, I was um, on social media. You know, there's a one, um, I follow many sites and I follow um, the dogist and he was taking pictures of this one guy's dog and he asked him how he got the dog. And he said that he was I don't know, he was on vacation somewhere and he saw people throw the dog out of their car and drive off. My God. Oh, that's horrible. That's horrible. Now, you could maybe make an excuse, well, if they did it in an area where there were other people, maybe they just assumed somebody would take their pet. But what kind of a monster? I'm sorry. I, I just can't wrap my head around that. Yeah. Humans can be difficult. terrible sometimes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we are seeing, um, you know, increased rates of strays and a lot of stray pets. Uh, it's been difficult for owners to hold on to their animals for, you know, different finance, financial reasons and things like that over um, the last couple of years. And so uh, we're just happy that we were able to take him in and he's just taking every stride as his mm-hmm. own. And um, we're really, really uh, confident that he'll find a really good family. Yeah. And if you're listening to this interview and you're or you you are or you know someone who is maybe struggling financially and could use some help, there are programs to help people buy pet food. You know, there are there are programs to help people like that out um, that will, you know, provide the food for your animal. If that's, you know, rather than you giving your animal up. And um, I sometimes I think people don't come to a shelter simply because they're they're ashamed. I mean, I was reading about one instance where somebody actually brought an animal to a shelter, like took the animal off leash in the lobby and turned around and walked out. And somebody who was working the front desk was like, excuse me. And the person just looked over their shoulder and kept going. So at least mm-hmm. I guess that's better than nothing. Um it you know I just um, people can be can you, you, be very strange you, about it. You Go bring ahead. up some some good points and, and and earlier when you were talking about the uh, the microchip, it's fantastic that Tink has the microchip, but still they're having trouble locating the actual owner. And sometimes it happens just because you might have an animal who's got the microchip, but it's not registered to you. So we've got to make sure you take that extra step. If you are to adapt a dog um, that has a chip, you need to make sure that it gets registered to you and not necessarily um, 
We've had an incident here where uh, we did find a, a stray dog that had no uh, no collar, so had no one to contact. We had to go to the local shelter, and it was great. They had a microchip, but it wasn't associated with anybody. It only got this to the actual animal hospital that first took it in. Luckily, right. and this is what's great about working with uh, anti-cruelty, they're going to go above and beyond to make sure that, you know, tanks, uh, you know, parents aren't out there looking for him. Yeah. Uh, he's a beautiful, uh, he's a beautiful, a big a husky puppy. But, uh, you know, <laughs> I can't believe that someone would want to, want to, uh, would intentionally, uh, you know, uh, get rid of Tank. Now, that said, they've done their due diligence and working with anti-cruelty, they're going to have their veterinarians on staff do a full workup. So if you were to have it in your heart and room in your home to adopt Tank, at least you're not going to get any surprises. By the time he becomes adoptable, like right now, he's just gotten to the point where he's allowed to be, start um, being fostered or, or adopted out because they can assume that the original owners aren't coming back to get him. But uh, and meanwhile, they're going to find out what type of underlying conditions Tank might have. And, and, and last time we had this uh, pet of the month, we were discussing about that uh, uh, mysterious illness that was going around uh, mm-hmm. to a different, uh, usually a, a kind of a more intense form of, of kennel cough. And while this bruiser, you know, looks nice and healthy, he does got that short nose that might make him a little more susceptible to uh, that type of condition. However, him being young and healthy and having his health checked out by the folks at Anti-Cruelty, that's going to you know, be very good for uh, him if, should he be exposed to that, um, that mysterious illness that uh, has been going around that seems yeah. to peter off a little bit. But it's always one of those concerns. So when you're working with Anti-Cruelty, first off, they're going to do their diligence to monitor the health of the animal. They're going to do try as hard as they can to find the original owner. And God forbid that doesn't happen. If you find yourself in a situation where you can't take care of your animal, they do not ask questions. There's no shame involved when you're unable to take care of your animal. In fact, one of the things that you can do to show how much you do care for the animal, even though you're unable to maybe physically take care of them on a daily basis any longer, is by bringing them to anti-cruelty or a similar shelter who won't ask questions and just, you know, you're giving the animal the best possible chance of being adopted by another family who hopefully can take care of them. So hopefully Tank was, uh, you know, one that, you know, ran off or got lost and, and not one that the, um, you know, that, that story that you said about, you know, someone literally throwing uh, a dog out the window. Hopefully Tank doesn't have that type of, of negative experience. And judging by how he's reacting, to the other animals and the people coming in to, to see him and, and the, the people who work at anti-cruelty, I got a feeling that he's going to be adopted pretty quick. Uh, well, I don't know if you got a chance uh, to see a picture of him yet, Craig, but one thing that I will say, uh, you can definitely tell he's got bulldog, but he doesn't have that flat face, like that pug smashed, uh, the brachiocephalic, you know, where everything is smushed together. Um, he's probably got a, a few genes from something else because he has um, uh, he has a bit of a snout to him, which is always good when it comes to breathing. I mean, I I owned a, a puggle, but my the puggle that I had was three quarters pug. And, uh, you know, you sit next to them and it's like, <laughs> I mean, it's like, oh, my God, you know, do you need an inhaler? Um, it's um, 
it it can and so you when they get a cold it's a it's a real it's a real problem um but this dog looks like his breathing might be a little bit easier than the the typical um um the typical bulldog and i do want to say i know you said he was 82 pounds but he's very yeah. compact uh, I don't want you to think this is a big, fat, sloppy dog. You know, he's very, he looks very muscular. It's, he's big boned. This is not a fat he dog. He's a big bone. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> most Guys, American we're take... bulldogs are, yeah. most of the American bulldogs are big, big boys, um, you know, as opposed to your English bulldog, which is a small, compact nose, you know, round little one that you're thinking of. Uh huh. You know, American. American Bulldogs, they're usually this color, they're white and they're brown and they got their speckles on their nose and, um, you know, he's, he's terrific. And I, you know, I want to go back to Craig's point, which is that he's very social. And so someone took care of him for a very long time and, Mm -hmm. you know, cared for him very, very well. So, you know, it kind of does make you think about, you know, what could have happened, but, um, you know, he's a very social dog and someone really loved this dog for a long time. So, um, he's a great boy. We'll help with microchip information at the society. And, um, Joan, like you said, we offer so many programs for people that need help. Um, and we're not here to judge. We have plenty of resources, um, to help everybody with their pets and keep their pets at home. So, um, yeah. I just wanted to reiterate that point. That And it's important to let people know those programs exist. We're going to take a real quick break. We are going to be back with more right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. It is our regular Pet of the Month segment sponsored by Mark Drugs. Craig Badagowski is here. They are in Deerfield and Roselle. They are a compounding pharmacy, so if you need something special, it makes it a lot easier than having to try to, you know, track something down online. They can just make something up for you. If you have a medicine your animal doesn't want to take, maybe they can add some flavoring to it. Um, really important that they provide all those kinds of services. And um, because they are a pharmacy, I'm pretty sure they take care of people, too. Uh, they're a people pharmacy as well as a pet pharmacy. And uh, Lane Anderson is here. Uh, Tracy Elliott, I'm afraid is under the weather he has to take better care of himself lane um but lane is here to talk about our new uh, pet of the month tank and um lane i don't know if you heard my stories about you know um ray and i are fosters for official fosters for anti-cruelty and last memorial day weekend i decided that there was a little dog that i would take for the four-day holiday you know give her a break from the shelter well Long story short, she never went back. Uh, she's now part of the household. And she's she's clearly made up of spare parts. So we did her DNA. And um, it we thought she looks like she's got Labrador in her. But what we found was the biggest percentage, God help me, I keep falling for this breed. She's like 30% pug. But then she's Chihuahua, Pitbull. Beagle and Shih Tzu. Pitbull, that is so interesting, isn't it? It's and she. May I just say, you can find body parts that correlate to each one of these particular breeds. She is, um, <laughs> she's one of a kind. Um, she, uh, but she is just. Well, the reason she didn't go back is she's just this big, snuggly love ball. And she just, um, I had my, I hosted my book club last night. And I just want you to know that 
everybody loves Willow, of course. But, you know, Willow comes over, says hello, and then lays under the table, hoping somebody's going to drop some food. Whereas Pretty Girl, she works the room like an entertainer. She goes to one person, and then she goes to the other person, and then she goes to another person. She checks in with me to see if I'm okay. Then she's back circulating, and she wags her tail so hard that her whole body goes in two different directions. Oh, that's and the best thing. Great. She is, yes. And she is just um, an absolute delight. <laughs> when you look at her, yeah. you, you, you can't. You can't figure out what she is, but, you know, she's one of a kind, uh, but she's got she's got a lot of personality. But the pit bull really threw me. Um, but, you know, now that I, I you know, she kind of does have some, you know, that big chest. So anyway, I just wanted to share yeah. with you and I will. Well, um, congratulations. Thank you. She's, we keep taking her picture, cutie. trying to find just the right angle. So she looks cute <laughs> instead of like a monster. Um, is, and we've got a few of them. Is she black and white? She's all black. She has a little bit of, yes. a, of a white beard. Um, yes. But for the most part, yeah, she's she's all black. But she is um, um, she's a real love a bucket. Hey, uh, Lane, I wanted to also mention this uh, March, you have a big uh, fundraising gala coming up for anti-cruelty, the 125th anniversary. Oh, my goodness. What a yes. what a legacy for a, a yes. shelter to be in existence that long. Yes, it's absolutely a milestone. And um, we are gearing up for that gala, which is going to be on March 9th of this year. Um, we will be sending out invitations uh, in the next couple of weeks. Um, there is also some information on our website that people can view, but um, we just got a huge shout out today from our friends at Chicago Symphony Orchestra as well. So um, we're really excited for this milestone. It's a huge, huge accomplishment um, to be here for this long and to be serving you know pets in the community. Um, and the animals that surround the areas of Chicago. So it's, it's very, very, very exciting for us. Oh, that's, that's just wonderful. Um, that is, that is absolutely wonderful. And, um, you can go to anticruelty.org forward slash gala if you would like where it is when it is and and what the menu is going to be which is you know <laughs> like tank i am very treat motivated <laughs> as are all of us at anti-cruelty as well <laughs> yeah hey craig one thing i wanted to ask you i was uh driving home this morning and i know that um Mark Drugs, I know you carry a lot of over-the-counter stuff for pets as well as all the stuff you formulate. And I don't know if you – I saw um, – it looked like it was a German Shepherd mix wearing shoes, which I just was in love with. The minute I was stopped at a red light and I wanted to just roll down the window and yell and just, I think your dog's shoes are great. Um, um, does, does, uh, Mark Drugs, do you sell anything other than supplements and medicines? Uh, unfortunately, our, our, uh, the Mark Drugs uh, canine clothesline is not out <laughs> yet. Um, but, uh, I, I, I think that is adorable. And I, I don't know if you see those, like, TikTok videos and whatnot where you see, uh, especially when they try to put boots on cats and how they walk around all awkward. Um, <laughs> it is absolutely 
adorable. But with a big German Shepherd, it kind of surprised because they're used to this in kind of inclement weather. They can probably handle it. Now, the well, one thing you know I what's been happening in our it, neighborhood, the sidewalks and the streets have been so cold um, that the the dog's paws can get um, a, like a beginning of frostbite when it was one of those oh, really yeah. super negative mornings. Ray took Willow out, and for the most part, Willow was walking on the snow, but toward the end of the walk, he had to cross the street and walk on the street, and Ray said he kind of started, not exactly limping, but Ray could tell his paws were bothering him. Well, right, almost, it'd be like a little maneuver, like a little, almost like a little dance, like they had to dance across Mm that, because keep in mind, you know, when you're out there and it's cold, and of course, you try to avoid those cold times, Uh, you know, these Dogs are pretty resilient. They can handle the cold for a little while, but try to not go out when it's super cold. And keep in mind, if you're walking them on the snow, that is actually quite a bit warmer than the pavement Mm -hmm. will be in the morning. Mm -hmm. And another thing, going back to uh, these booties on this uh, German Shepherd that you saw, it's um, what you do have to be worried about more than the actual cold. is that it's actually a German Shepherd or or big old tank over here. Won't have any problems for short periods out in the cold, but it's the salt that ends up on the streets that sits there for quite some time so when they had to you know uh, thaw out the uh, the walkways and whatnot sometimes they use excessive salt and that can accumulate on the dog's paws Ew. so i don't know they don't think you have to necessarily worry about it every single time but make sure if you have brought your dog out and they weren't protected to wash off that excess salt because first off you don't want them to lick it because there's sometimes other things that get into that salt to improve its uh, ice making uh, melting capabilities but on the other hand um, just long-term exposure will dry out their paws and their pads so they might get damage on their pads uh, over you know long-term exposure to the to the, the high you know concentration of salt uh, you know especially over this winter so keep that in mind if you're going to walk walk them in the snow where there's not going to be that much salt mm-hmm. to begin with uh, do as little uh, as you can as far as any contact with the pavement when it's super cold like first thing in the morning and if you do happen to walk through an area that you're certain that they've uh, put some salt to melt the ice make sure that you actually wash off your um, your your dog's paws so that residue doesn't sit there dry it out and can cause some other uh, painful issues down the road yeah um i i i think that's a really important notice i mean i when they came back from a walk i tried to wash a willow's paws off and um he let me wash three of them, and then he was like, I've had enough, thank you, I'm leaving now. And so I figured his fourth paw must be not giving him any trouble. But yeah, that, and, and, and the actual crystals, sometimes those crystals of salt are so big, they must be like rocks if they get in their paws. Yeah, if it gets wedged in there in the middle where, where uh, you know, they're highly sensitive, um, you know, they might be in some serious pain. So keep a lookout and make sure that if they're, when they get back inside, if they do seem to be um, limping, but not necessarily in too much pain, there could be some of those uh, chunks kind of stuck in between their paws. So do as good as you can. It looks like, you know, you got you got three out of four paws on, on Willow. That's an accomplishment. <laughs> but um, so do what you can to make sure that the salt isn't there causing either physical damage or chemical damage because having that high concentration of salt and whatever other ingredients they put in that uh, road salt uh, can do some damage if it's not uh, removed. 
Yeah, and we try to, we don't use salt very often. Well, we don't generally, um, our driveway and front walk generally don't get very icy, but we try to buy what they call what pet friendly salt. And I'm not quite sure what the difference is, but, um, I figure it was worth, it may be just a marketing thing. I don't know, but it, I figured it was worth giving it a try. Yeah, I don't think it's a bad idea at all because in some of the more industrial ones, um, you'll, you'll notice that it's also like a, an off color. It's not uh, kind of the, the typical, um, you know, white looking salt. So that's just probably sodium chloride that you got that it's more pet friendly. Um, and then they probably added like accelerants and stuff to the, uh, the one that's more industrial for like heavy de-icing of highways and, and, and heavy uh, walkways uh, that has other chemicals that enhance uh, how well that stuff melts the ice. You just got to make sure, regardless, if you can get uh, even three out of four paws, but hopefully get all four cleaned off once they get back in the house after walking on a uh, on a walkway that's been salted. It's just a, a good idea to keep your pet healthy and uh, out of pain. And um, before we wrap up, I want to mention the family day, furry valentines that's coming uh, to anti-cruelty. Uh, families with children 5 to 17 are invited over to the River North location on February 10th. And there will be crafts and snacks and visits from some of the shelter residents. Um, oh, yeah. And everybody's going to be able to make a, a valentine. And uh, what a great idea, Lane. Yeah, we, we really love Valentine's Day. Um, you know, we love celebrating and, and having the animals involved in that process. If you visit the site, you're always going to see an animal. That's a promise. Um, and we'll also be doing some sort of adoption promo through um, the Valentine's Day uh, week. So look out for that as well. Yeah, but that's that's wonderful. So, um, Lane, please um, communicate our uh, best get well wishes to to Tracy. Um, Absolutely. It has been a it's been a tough winter for a lot of people, and uh, I have no idea why I got through the holiday season without getting sick because that's most unlike me. Um, I understand what it what it is like to be vulnerable to these viruses. So please tell him to take care of himself, and I hope he goes to bed and gets snuggled by all of his puppies. <laughs> Yes, his two his two girls. He loves them, and they love him. <laughs> <laughs> and Lane, thank you for joining us today. It was really thank wonderful you, to talk to you. And you know, tell T Tracy if he doesn't up his game, uh, we may replace <laughs> him on a permanent basis. <laughs> I'm sure he would not be opposed. You know, if I substitute for him sometimes. But Joan, thank you so much for having me. It was great to speak with you both, and you too, Craig. Thank, thank you, you very Lane. much. And, Craig, of course, it is always a pleasure uh, to talk with you, my friend. And thank you for being such a great supporter of Pet of the Month and a great supporter of WCPT. You're the best. Yeah, yeah. Go go, go to MarkDrinks.com. Do I take a look at um, uh, Tank? You scroll oh, the you've the page, got Tank's picture up. There he oh. is, right there. Fine. <laughs> He's got it. Um, give me web address again, Craig. Just markdrugs.com, scroll to the bottom, and you'll see big, beautiful tank just <laughs> waiting for a, a, a lovely home to, to live in. 
Well, yes. that's he is. He's a beautiful boy. Um, thank you yeah. both very much. It is lovely to talk about pets. And I um, will look forward to our discussion next month. And good luck to Tank for getting adopted. All right. Thank you, Joan. Thank you. Thank you. We are going to take a break for news. We are going to be back with more right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I am pleased to welcome back Professor William Muck, who is a political science professor at North Central College in Naperville. And uh, William, have we talked yet? Uh, This is our first conversation in 2024, I think. It is. Happy New Year. And could you turn the heat up, Joan? It's chilly out there. Oh, come on. It's above freezing. What do you want, buddy? I mean, come on. (laughs) Jeez. I did the best I could. (laughs) We're hopefully trending in the right direction. Maybe maybe a little warmer this weekend. I I don't know. (laughs) Ray went to uh, walk the dog yesterday and it was like 27 and he came back and he goes, man, it's so warm out there today. (laughs) It's like a heat wave. (laughs) Yes, it is a heat wave. It absolutely is a heat wave. Um, Well, I hate to uh, jump right into the real serious stuff here, but um, I guess... I have not followed Benjamin Netanyahu's career or political positions all that closely over the years. Um, but even if he has always said that he would never support a two-state solution, this seems like the wrong time to be making those kinds of statements really publicly. What? And I've been thinking about that. Okay, his argument is somehow that... A two-state solution would make Israel less secure. But most of the experts that I've read say exactly the opposite is true, that it would be um, a way to release the pressure in the Mideast and that that Israel would be more secure if the Palestinians had a land of their own. What went through your mind when you saw these public statements that are getting a lot of press today? Well, I, I was surprised, but it's in some ways it's not shocking, right? He was moving that direction. And I think this conclusion is more a reflection of what's going on domestically within the Israeli government, right? So the hard right uh, of his coalition is pushing him and has been pushing him for a long time to move away from the two-state solution. And as you noted, he hasn't said that. He hasn't said we're rejecting that until today. The last couple of days, he sort of come out and basically said, we're done with that approach. We don't see this as a viable political solution. And we are moving forward with a, a decision where basically Israel is going to have security control over both the Gaza and the West Bank. And that it's a dramatic development. And it, you know, it just complicates things for Israel. And to your point, I think it absolutely makes it much, much more difficult to have long term peace in the Middle East. Ultimately, the Palestinians have to have political representation and rejecting the two state solution is going to prevent that from happening. So what is he must perceive that there is some value to making these statements, even though he has made life difficult for Joe Biden. I don't know if you saw the statement. Tammy Duckworth came out and just slammed him. Um, You know, there's obviously been a lot of negative backlash to these statements. So what is what does he gain? What is the upside? Because, I, you know, he's not stupid. He must feel that there is something to be gained. 
I think there's a couple things that are playing out. And one, I really think it's, it's the domestic politics here where, you know, he, Netanyahu wants to stay in power. Like all politicians, that's his number one goal. And he's realizing that the only way he can stay in power, the only way that he can keep this coalition together is if he keeps that far right flanked, you know, intact. And, and I think they're pushing him for this. And it's also possible that after the attack on October 7th, maybe that's just where he is at, um, that he sort of has decided he's done with the two state solution and will declare so publicly. But you're absolutely right. I think it also suggests that he's less concerned about the opinion of the United States and specifically Joe Biden, because this puts Biden in all sorts of difficult positions. He's got to come out and reject it. And it's, I think, long term going to complicate that relationship between the United States and Israel. So I think there have to be pretty strong domestic constraints to force Netanyahu to do this. So He's playing, which is the only reason that I could come up with, that he's playing to his base. Uh, who does that remind you of? But that's another discussion. <laughs> he's playing to his base. But I was just reading something yesterday that said that behind the, clo- you know, because they came together in this big coalition government, even the people who hated Netanyahu were willing to set that aside, you know, in the interest of, um, you know, fighting Hamas. But I was reading that there have been cracks in that coalition, that behind the scenes, he's getting a lot of grief and a lot of pushback from the people who really didn't like him in the first place. You and I have talked about this, and I've said that I don't see politically how he survives this. He's not a very well-liked person by seemingly the majority of his countrymen, even if he does have this small conservative coalition. So do you think it's viable? Do you see a scenario where he survives politically? For a while. Now, I will say he's very, very motivated because if you remember, he's also facing corruption charges. And as long as he is in power, as long as he's the prime minister, those stand on the sidelines. So he has a, you know, similar to Donald Trump, mm-hmm. he has an interest in remaining in power. And what has happened over the last couple of years is he has continued to drift further and further right as he's trying to hold his political power together. Now, to answer your question, I think I can't imagine this is holding. You know, the other comparison, you know, think about Republicans in the in the House right now and how difficult it is to get anything done. And I think he's drifting into that space. So, you know, he may be able to cobble things together for a short period of time, but there's no way I see him holding this for the long term because he's he's basically toxic. And as more information comes out about, you know, the mismanagement of some of the intelligence prior to the attack, I think it's going to make it more and more difficult for Netanyahu in the long term to stay in power. Uh, I think I think you're exactly right. And I don't understand, even if he's playing to his base, I agree with you. I think he took his number one supporter, Joe Biden, and put him in a in a very difficult uh, situation. One of my listeners, when we were having a discussion earlier, texted in, you know, why doesn't everybody who's supporting Israel financially just cut off that financial support and say, you know, unless you move on this two, uh, a two-state solution, unless you do more for the Palestinians, no more aid for you. And I had actually talked about that with somebody earlier in the week, and they said for Joe Biden to cut off aid to Israel would be political suicide. Do you agree? 
Yeah, I think that it's just too strong of a relationship. It's too central to the Democratic Party and, and actually Democrat and Republican Party. So that, you know, you can't fully cut ties with Israel. But I, to your point, I wouldn't be surprised if Joe Biden starts to make more of a distinction between Israel and Netanyahu and, and pledge all sort of support for Israel and their security and their right to defend themselves in a long-term peaceful solution, but then disconnect himself from Netanyahu. Because at the end of the day, Joe Biden is also a person. And, and, you know, he has to feel a little frustrated with what Netanyahu is up to in terms of, you know, Joe Biden's political standing has been linked to Israel. And as this conflict has gone in and gone sideways in a bad direction, it has hurt Joe Biden. So so I think just on a human level, I think Joe Biden's frustrated. And you might see some signs of him trying to disconnect from Netanyahu while he retains that broad support for Israel. Hmm. Um, I think it's it's going to be very interesting to see how this uh, plays out in this country as well as in in Israel. Um, I don't see, I mean, there's been, um, there was a statement put out by the White House today, you know, President Biden had a call with him and thanked him for allowing like shipments of flour to get through to Palestinians and thanking him for this and thanking him for that. Uh, But also mentioning that for Israel's long-term security, uh, a two-state solution seems to be the op- best option. I wish in some of these readouts of the calls, it would say, President Biden said this, and then Netanyahu said this, and then President Biden <laughs> said this, which would, you know, I mean, because it's all just, oh, you know, I congratulated him, I thanked him, he did this, he did that, he did this, he did that. And, you know, I mentioned a two-state solution as something that was kind of important. End of press release. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Right. I mean, you think about I mean, let's think about some of the other conflicts around the world and throughout history. I I always come back to Northern Ireland. What eventually led to real progress was a political solution where all sides got a voice in the government. Uh, And it's clear that that's what is necessary uh, between the Israelis and the Palestinians. You have to have a viable two state solution. Uh, You have to create economic opportunities for the Palestinians. This isn't rocket science. This is you know, this is the study of conflict reveals that quite clearly. Uh, and, and, and Biden knows this. And, and I think, you know, he's increasingly frustrated with how Israel is, is waging this war, which is putting tremendous amount of pressure on the, on the U.S. administration. And he's, he's also frustrated with this decision to say, I'm no longer considered, I'm, I'm no longer considering political conversations about a two-state solution, right? It, it, it's really putting the Biden administration in a difficult po- uh, place. Mm. I'm speaking to political science professor William Muck, Um, From North Central College in Naperville, we are going to take a break. We're going to be back with more right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm joined by William Muck, who's a political science professor at North Central College in in Naperville and also co-host of the political podcast Politics Politics Lab. Um, And... um, the politics lab. I guess it's the politics lab, not just politics lab, William. I want yeah, to get the, this right. We got the yeah, the thes in the title, the politics lab. So okay. if you want to go to our the web page, it's thepoliticslab.com. <clears throat> yep, yep. Because you know, car- the carpenters used to always correct people and say that the band name wasn't the carpenters, it was just <laughs> carpenters. And they used to get real fussy about it. So it's, it's I don't like want to the offend. Ohio State University, right? I, I don't well, care. Well, that you know, is you, the you, correct you, name, the <laughs> Ohio right. State University, and that's what we call it. 
<laughs> Let us not have any questions about that. It's official part of the title. Um, you and your um, partner, Bill, did a recent podcast on the Iowa caucuses. And I would love to hear your thoughts on this political non-event in my world. I think it's a non-event. It, it was two people running for second place and not even really running to try to be vice president. Uh, I, it was cold weather. Almost nobody turned out. So um, what did you think of the Iowa caucuses now that I have totally uh, given you my, my trash idea of what it was? No, no, I, t- I tend to agree with you, Joan, right? I mean, I, I think Iowa and Iowa and Iowa caucuses are just, they're such a quirky thing. Um, and I understand the history and, you know, some people think it's a fun way to do it, but, but the data that comes out of Iowa is just not very good. I mean, you have, you know, roughly only a hundred thousand people participated, which even among Republicans, but that's like 15% of registered Republican voters. So it's such a small percentage. Um, you know, Trump did well, um, but it's hard to extrapolate from that. I think you're absolutely right to say, you know, if Haley or DeSantis had any hope of, of actually mounting a real challenge to Donald Trump, it, it had to happen here and it didn't. Um, I, you know, I tend to think this was like the first step in a coronation of Donald Trump is, is the, you know, is the nominee. I think that's, it's, it's inevitable that that's where we are heading and the Trump administration or the Trump team made sure that that happened in Iowa. So yeah, I mean, I, I'm guessing that Nikki Haley is likely to do better in New Hampshire, but I think at the end of the day, none of this really matters because as soon as we get to Super Tuesday and some of those case, those elections, I mean, Trump is probably going to have this wrapped up Maybe even Super Tuesday, right? I mean, they, their, their organization and how they've set things up. This is, this is a coronation and coming. Uh, mm-hmm. and the rest of it is, is basically window dressing. Yeah. And I think that, um, I think the most likely vice presidential pick for Donald Trump is Elise Stefanik. Um, why he made the announcement that he was going to pick a woman, um, I don't know why he did that. And who knows, you know, if he doesn't want to stick with it, he won't. Because I think Tim Scott is also really uh, sucking up to him in a big way to get that spot. But a Nikki Haley or a Ron DeSantis, I mean, Donald Trump has said that Mike Pence basically had too much independence and uh, wasn't um, obsequious enough, frankly, <laughs> uh, for Donald Trump. So there's no way he's going to pick Nikki Haley. I actually read one conservative columnist this week that said, if for no other reason, he won't pick Nikki Haley because there's some concern that Republicans in the Congress and in the Senate would then impeach him and vote him out of mm. office so that they could install Nikki Haley as president. That's interesting. (laughs) Yeah. He's worried about a mutiny from his own people. But he doesn't want he doesn't want somebody who's going to balance the ticket. He doesn't want somebody who's going to make him a stronger, better president. I mean, he has said the only thing that is going to matter to him is loyalty, loyalty, loyalty. And frankly, I think we'll be lucky if we escape Carrie Lake as vice president with him. No, I. 
I think you're absolutely right in that sense. And it's, it's such a contrast between 2016. You know, in 2016, Trump ran on, you know, I'm an outsider, but I'm going to bring others in. And the choice of Mike Pence, uh, was, uh, you know, was a reflection of that. And then, you know, the rest of his team were the adults in the room and he has fully, completely rejected that approach. And the individuals he's surrounding himself, uh, in the campaign, the people that will be part of a future administration, you know, the, the thousands of people who potentially could take over of the deep state, deep state. All of those people are being vetted for their loyalty to Donald Trump. You know, the knowledge and their expertise is secondary to their loyalty to Donald Trump. And I think vice president will be absolutely the same way. So, you know, there's no way if I were guessing that he would go with the Tim Scott or Nikki Haley or anybody else, because that's they would steal some of the attention from Donald Trump and they would not be loyal enough. So absolutely. We know what a second Trump administration is going to look like because he's telling us mm-hmm. and he's made it very, very clear that loyalty is the number one most important factor here. And I, 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 that's scary for a whole bunch of reasons, Joan, but you're spot on in terms of the, the selection process. Yeah. Uh, the other person I'd like to talk about is Mike Johnson. Mike Johnson, who negotiated a budget deal with Chuck Schumer in the Senate and, uh, well, at least uh, the framework, as they like to say, the framework for a deal. Um, and then pretty much couldn't bring it for a vote in the House of Representatives because uh, he wasn't going to be able to get the votes. And the far right was saying basically what seems to me what his far right boils down to is nothing can ever be done in a bipartisan manner because we don't want Joe Biden to look like we're giving him any victories. So just just forget about it. And oh, by the way, we can't really agree amongst ourselves. At least we can't put together a budget that the Senate will vote on. So let's just, you know, we'll vote uh, to extend the current budget one month at a time. And if Mike Johnson didn't want to delay this time around, and he now has a month to try to get a budget passed, I think he has to do it on a bipartisan basis, and I think that whether it's Marjorie Taylor Greene or Matt Gates, somebody is going to um, call a resolution to vacate the chair. What do you see? What do you see oh, as Mike uh, Johnson's future? It's it's not good, right? I mean, we've seen this play before. It's going to be the same process. And, and why that's the case is for the hard, far, far right Governance is not the point. They're not there to govern. They're govern. They're not there to debate legislation and talk about the proper size of government and how you create health care. That's that's not what they're there to do. They're there to prevent the the process or the the government from governing and and so they're going to continue to do this to their own team right so Mike Johnson sees hey I got a chance to go down in history to be the speaker of the house but he's going to fall prey to the same exact dynamics that have brought down all of these previous Republican speakers because nobody on the far right is going to play with them and then you know Mike Johnson to his credit he's trying to govern right you get put in this position and suddenly when you have some real authority you realize that you know budgets matter governing matters there are real things that are impacted if the government doesn't do his job. So he's trying to do his job, but he realizes that he can't because the rest of his party, which he is certainly part of, uh, won't let him do that. So it's, you know, it's, it's a, it's just, it's just awful to watch that process play out. And, and you feel a little bad for Mike Johnson, but he's also the one that helped create some of the dynamics that are now, you know, infused throughout the far right of the Republican party. Uh, there was, um, 
an interview. I played a little bit of it earlier. Matt Gates was on CNN with Abby Phillip and Matt Gates was like, well, you know, McCarthy just ran away. He just left. And, you know, he could have stayed and fought for things. And Abby Phillip started to laugh and she said, ran away. She said, you you took his job away. You kicked him out of the speakership. And Matt was like, well, yeah, but he could have stayed in Congress. Um, what do you think is Mike Johnson's future? You know, the, you know, maybe he has a year, maybe he lasts until the next election. But, um, you know, he's, he's not, it's unlikely that the Republicans hold the House. And if they do hold the House, it's unlikely that he's going to stay in that position. So then he will have to face the same question that that everybody, John Boehner and others have also faced of, do I want to go back and be a member, a part of this House, or do I want to go and try to do something else? And, and my guess is he'll probably go do something else, right? He'll go do some media or something. He'll take his, his 15 seconds of fame and get out. Because the current Republican Party just grinds anybody who wants to really govern anybody, whether that's, you know, bipartisan or just as the Republican Party, they won't allow anything that resembles governing. It's it's a huge fundamental flaw of the party right now that it's all about attacks. It's about demonizing the government, demonizing the other side. But it's not about actually having a legislative agenda. And it's again, it's it's a real fundamental flaw of the Republican or this version of the Republican Party. You know, I thought it was interesting that Mitch McConnell, uh, I think it was the week of the 8th, tried to, it seemed to me that he was trying to give Mike Johnson some cover because um, at that point there was two weeks to the first partial shutdown. And Mitch McConnell said publicly, well, you know, I, I really think that they should vote to ex- extend the current budget because, you know, it takes a long time to get anything done in the Senate. You know, even the easiest, simplest things take at least a week. And I thought to myself, that doesn't sound like uh, somebody who's really necessarily speaking the absolute truth. It sounds like somebody who's trying to give Mike Johnson something to cling to. Well, you know, we've even heard from the Senate uh, <laughs> that they can't move that fast. So let's just extend it. And I, 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 I don't know. I think Mike Johnson is on very thin ice, and I hope he is enjoying every day he spends as speaker, because I think it is going to be a more and more difficult job as uh, every day goes by. Um, with, there's more that I want to talk to you about, Professor Muck, but we need to take a break. We'll be back with more right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm uh, speaking with North Central College political science professor William Muck. And, um, William, I do want to move on to other things, but one of um, our listeners uh, contacted me with an interesting comment. Remember back in the day when Trump would force people who had opposed him to grovel, Mitt Romney and Chris Christie, by dangling really important positions in his administration. And so he sort of like, he never really offered them those positions, but he was able to get them to humiliate themselves. And um, they are wondering, this listener, if Donald Trump will do the same thing with Nikki Haley, you know, lead her on to believe that she could be his VP just to get her to grovel and then, of course, choose someone else. It's sort of, well, it wouldn't be out of character for him, would it? 
It wouldn't. And if, if Nikki Haley thinks she has a future in the Republican Party, she's likely to play along. Uh, we saw that with, you know, Vivek Ramaswamy list last week where Trump just trashed him. And then a couple days later, Vivek is, is endorsing him at a ca- campaign event in New Hampshire, right? So this is a long standing pattern. And, and I think Nikki Haley has compromised much of, of who she was as a candidate prior to Donald Trump. So it, it's clear that she wants to have political power in the future and she sees herself as a, a viable candidate in the future. So it's possible that she would play along. And again, it, it's difficult to watch all of this, all of this, you know, the individuals who had a, a you know, serious career beforehand who are groveling in front of a, mm-hmm. a populist demagogue. But you're absolutely, this is sort of what happens. And I think it's a good observation. Yeah, I th- thank you, uh, Jody, for that comment. I thought it was really interesting. Um, I want to also talk to you uh, about January 6th. You mentioned uh, in one of your emails to me that it's now in in some circles. Uh, what happened on January sixth is now sort of alternative history. Talk about what you what you read about on this. This is to me. This is so fascinating and stunning. And you know, so we think about historical events, and over time, oftentimes historical events become contested, and people tell different stories. But what we've seen in January sixth is that in in a couple short years, the Republicans and and Donald Trump have been able to rewrite how we understand this event. And uh, you know, interestingly, you know, so the Washington Post and the University of Maryland came out with a poll, and now forty four percent of Trump voters said that it is likely or or definitely true uh that the FBI encouraged violence on against the capitol right so you know nearly 50% of trump supporters believe that january 6 was instigated by the FBI and it's 34% of republicans uh the percent that hold trump accountable for january 20 uh, january 6 has dropped from 27 to 14 so you're seeing in a relatively short period of time uh the republic and this this base movement have been able to rewrite history and and you know again if you think about the civil war these are things that you know none of us living have have any specific knowledge of but we all watched January 6 right we were glued mm-hmm. to our TVs we know what happened and I think it's it's just it's beyond stunning that in you know three years the powers of disinformation are able to rewrite that history where it essentially becomes mainstream orthodoxy of the Republican Party that an alternative reality is in fact true. And I, I you know, as, as a, somebody who studies, you know, a scholar who studies and thinks about these things, I, I have trouble wrapping my head around how that can happen so quickly. So there's no historical precedent for this. There haven't been previous, um, whether they were violent or not, incidents that later were rewritten in memory because the only only thing I can think of is um, in the Philippines where um, the Marcos's son is now in power and yes. in I read a, I saw a really interesting report on that about how over time you know the the corruption and just the um, the illegalities that were present during the original Marcos regime, they were basically kicked out of power. They were disgraced. And there has been a rewriting of history. Literally, um, a lot of the history books in the Philippines, any references to illegalities on the part of his parents have been removed. They really have just been 
um, redacted from the, the public discourse to the point where when their son ran to lead the Philippines, I saw reporters talking to people and they were like, Oh, well, you know, his parents were such great leaders when they were in power and they did so many great things for the company, for the country. How could we not elect their son? And it was like this, it was like some kind of weird mind wipe. Yeah. No, absolutely right. And, and the Marcos regime that, you know, his, his parents were so corrupt. I mean, historically, epically corrupt. And you're right that his son, you know, his son getting elected was shocking. But then afterwards, sort of the, the revisionism of that history is, it's startling, right? And it's startling when it happens in a democracy. It's not surprising when it happens in Russia, right? Putin is, is an authoritarian system and he can rewrite the history to, to what, say whatever he wants it to say. But in the United States and also in the Philippines, that these kind and dynamics can happen and they can happen so quickly suggests that we're in a new era where the tools of of misinformation and disinformation are so powerful and so persuasive uh, and and what happened you know regarding January 6th really was an organic movement it started with a lot of the individuals and the families who were members of the January 6th attack who started these narratives and then it gets picked up by right-wing media you know those individuals start spreading the, so- the story and then Donald Trump comes in, but others have laid the seeds already. And again, the the pace and the clarity with which those now see this new, you know, alternative history is it's really, really shocking that in a democracy where, you know, facts are supposed to matter that this quickly, uh, a good chunk of the country can view events that they saw with their own eyes in such a completely different way. As part of an older generation, you know, who grew up with this attitude that mainstream media could be trusted to always bring you the truth. Maybe as a group, we are more susceptible to disinformation because it's that, well, you know, I mean, I can remember people saying, well, if it, if it was printed, it must be true. Like somehow we would, you know, there would be forces that would make sure everything was fair and accurate. So maybe we're more susceptible because if it's out there, Maybe we have an inclination to think, well, it must be true if it's out there. But what about your students? What about the younger generation who've grown up with social media? And, you know, a lot of them were cyber bullied when when they were younger. And I think they have a very different sort of relationship to social media. But what do you see in your students? You know, I think it's just such a great question, Joan, because I, I think younger, especially as I think about my students, they're really more tech savvy and more aware of the complexity and the amount of, of misinformation and disinformation that is out there than some of us who are older, who you, you as you stated, like trust the media and, and trust politicians as well, right? Because that's the, the sort of circular dynamic where the media puts this out there or certain outlets of the media put it out there. And then you have politicians like Paul Gosar or Mark. Marjorie Taylor Greene and others and Donald Trump who reinforce that. So you have authority figures saying this is correct. And then the media puts alternative facts out there. So, no, I think our I, I think my students are more aware of the messiness and the complexity of all this than sometimes older generations are, which gives me a little hope, right? Gives me a little mm-hmm. hope that there can be a reckoning and we can move a little bit closer to reality. Because when you look at the, you know, the average uh, Republican, the average uh, individual who was at the grounds on, on January 6th, they're, they're older they're whiter uh, and they have less education than others in the country. So I think that's also a revealing pattern there. Do your students 
um, use social media? Because it, it also seems to me, and, you know, I'm judging this by the very so- small sample of my children and their friends, um, you know, like my daughter has accounts on various things, but she never uses them. She doesn't use Facebook. She doesn't use Instagram. She's not on TikTok. Um, I can't even think of, of, of anything. I mean, they they really don't, at least my kids, my adult children and their friends don't seem to really use it that much. Do you, what do you see in your students? Is that, is my, are my kids a representative sample or not? Not necessarily, right? I think they, I think they use social media, but not the same social media that you and I are using, Joan, right? So they're not on Facebook. They're not on Twitter. You know, they're on Instagram. They're on TikTok. Uh, they're on YouTube. So they use it differently. And it sort of depends by age. Uh, but absolutely, they're using social media. And in fact, it's oftentimes the primary way that they get news now. Um, you know, I talk about in my classes, part of the things, you know, so I teach classes on international politics and I want them to kind of follow what's going on in the world. And most of them are getting the news and they're not getting it directly from the New York Times. They're getting the New York Times through TikTok, through Instagram, through these other other outlets. How about so YouTube? That's Oh, absolutely, right? Uh, younger generations are uh, really love YouTube in some ways more so than than traditional television because they can craft what they want to learn and what they want to watch. So also very, very popular and fundamentally different um, than, than older generations and how they use social media. And I think they're they're more savvy. They're more aware of manipulation. And again, that, that gives me hope that uh, with time, maybe as a society, we can be better about managing mis- and disinformation. I hope so, too. And uh, by the way, um, as my daughter <clears throat> told me when I think she was 15, Facebook is for old people. So um, <laughs> I do have uh, a couple of Facebook accounts and I never use them. And I will tell you, yes, I do look at Instagram. Well, I have one private Facebook group that's just my family and I use it to keep track of birthdays and new babies in the family. But Instagram is, uh, my Instagram is 70% dogs. And I think that's how it should be. And I, I, if once, every once in a while, I'll go through who I follow. And cause sometimes po- political stuff creeps in and I delete it. I delete all the election stuff. I delete all the political groups. I delete the activist groups because it cuts into my dog viewing time. (laughs) That's a good approach. I I think we'd all be better off if we spent more time thinking about our dogs and our pets. And I, I, Joan, I spent a lot of time. I'm sort of a birder that that makes me happy (laughs) and it keeps me calm, but it also suggests that my age is not the same age as my students. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Of course, uh, I get up in the morning and I read multiple newspapers and more newsletters than you can count. Uh, plus, I'm on all these different email lists. So I make up for it in the morning. So those of you who are listening and you think, well, no wonder she doesn't know anything. I want you to know that I am well informed and that I work very hard at it. I spend hours every day, usually in the mornings, and then I do the show. And then I just want to see dogs after that. I just need dogs. <laughs> Uh, let's take a break. Professor William Muck and I will be right back after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm speaking with North Central College uh, political science professor William Muck. We have been, we well, he let us off on a tangent on dogs, but I'm going to bring us back <laughs> to politics. Um, you um, 
were pondering this effort by Maine and Colorado to remove Donald Trump from the primary ballot based on the fact that someone who has caused or been involved in an insurrection cannot be a candidate for president. Uh, that measure is going before the Supreme Court. And in the email you sent me, I thought it was really interesting because your take on the issue is exactly what I got from a legal scholar. Um, explain to the audience how you think this this decision should go. Well, this this is, uh, you know, there are all sorts of reasons to talk about this, but I think this is really fascinating because it brings to the fore the question of originalism. Uh, and and so the, the, the supermajority on the Supreme Court, actually almost all of the judges now, justices on the Supreme Court, believe in this idea of originalism, that it, to understand the Constitution, you have to go back to the original intent of the founders. And that's how you need to decide cases. You look at what they were thinking about, what they were writing, you look at the text, what did the text mean, right? So it's all about determining the original interpretation. And what we've seen out of the Supreme Court recently is, you know, the, the Dobbs decision was classic originalism. So they looked back at this case and they said that if you go back to the founding of the Constitution, the founders were not thinking about abortion. They had no intention to protect abortion. So therefore, we get rid of it, right? So, you know, and I think there are all sorts of problems with originalism because it allows for, I think, political views to seep in. But this case about you know, kicking Donald Trump off the ballot is a really fascinating test of originalism, because I think if the judge or the justices are going to apply originalism, it means that Donald Trump is going to lose. Right. Because if you go back and you look at the 14th Amendment, Section three of the 14th Amendment, it is so clear it says if you've taken an oath and you carry out an insurrection against the government, you are barred from running for office unless two-thirds of the Congress votes to allow you to run. And it's clear that the original intent was to prevent insurrectionists. Now, they were writing after the Civil War, but they didn't just say Confederates, right? They, they used intentional language to say anybody who carries out an insurrection against the government. So it creates this really fascinating dilemma for the Supreme Court, which has argued for years that we have to ground our decisions in originalism. And if they do that and they follow the text and the original intent of this amendment, they have to say Donald Trump is ineligible for office. Okay, now, we know they're, they're not going to do that. We know yes. they're not going to do that. So how are they going to justify the fact that they're not going to do that? They're going to have to undermine the very principles they tell us they use to make decisions. Uh, and I think that's the real rub here. They're going to have to find some other way to say that, well, originalism doesn't matter. Or they're going to have to come up with some <laughs> other form of originalism, right? I think it puts them in a really, really difficult place here where they are going to have to reject the very principles that they argue they use to decide cases. Because and I know there are – what's fascinating to me is that there are a lot of really compelling concerns conservative legal scholars who are coming down on this side to say that, hey, if you read the Constitution, if you apply originalism, this one isn't hard. Colorado, Maine, other states have the right to kick him off the ballot because of his acts of insurrectionism. Um, and I, again, I, I just find this to be such a fascinating topic because I think the Supreme Court is going to have to undermine its own principles to allow Donald Trump to remain on the ballot. 
Yeah, and uh, I think I think you've you've hit the nail on the head. But I agree with you that they will they will maybe they'll say, well, this really this really isn't this is not the time um, to apply originalism. This is the time <laughs> to look at you know the world as it exists today. Something we never do on any other issue. But you know, I think Republicans, particularly Republicans in power, wealthy Republicans, the Federalist Society. I, I think that they have an undue influence on the court. And I know that, um, at the very least, Mitch McConnell came out and said publicly that, um, that he didn't think that Trump should be kicked off the ballot, you know, that basically we should, you know, we should trust the voters and leave it up to the voters to decide who they want on the ballot, not addressing this whole constitutional or 14th Amendment issue at all. But I think that enough high-powered Republicans have let it be known that they don't want this to happen, that I think the Supreme Court, um, you know, will definitely go along with that. Another question I have in when the question of immunity, because I'm sure you've heard, you know, Donald Trump is doing this for the good of America because uh, even he's doing it even for Joe Biden, because if presidents don't have full and complete and entire immunity to do what they want to do, regardless of our laws, well, presidents will never do anything. They won't take any action because, you know, then they might get charged with a crime. And he's not doing it just for himself. Don't you know that, William? He's doing it for all the presidents who will come <laughs> after him for the for the good of America. And then my favorite part where his lawyer, Alina Haba, basically came out and said, well, you know, at the very least, Brett Kavanaugh ought to rule with us on this. He owes us like he owes his seat to Donald Trump. So like it's time for him to basically repay that. What an idiotic thing to say. And if you're Brett Kavanaugh, I don't know. I think I'd be tempted to vote against it just on general principle. Oh, and and I think this one is much easier for the court than the the ballot question, right? I I wouldn't be surprised if this comes back nine zero. Maybe Thomas will support him, but uh, you know, this is one where he is he is suggesting that he has the court in his pocket, and the court has to, for its own integrity, reject this. Let's be honest, it's silly argument. The idea that the president is somehow immune uh, from all of the activities that he conducts as president is, is is garbage, right? I mean, I think it's it's very clear that that is a terrible argument, and even a quick reading of the Constitution rejects that. Um, so I, I wouldn't be surprised if the court very, very quickly uh, rejects that uh, and feels comfortable doing so. I think the ballot one is going to is going to require them to do a little more uh, legal gymnastics to get where they need to be. But uh, yeah, no, it is. It's fascinating how because we can't legislate because the Congress can't get anything done. All of these central questions now fall to the court, um, you know, a time and time again, instead of handling things through the normal democratic process we we throw them to the court and you know i I don't know if the court is going to enjoy all of the cases that come from donald trump (laughs) i i I would imagine that they would prefer not to get any cases uh from donald trump um i do i'm sorry i i have to end this on a down note i i i've learned some very disturbing things you know usually uh if you're writing a bio for yourself or i don't know you're going to make a speech or maybe you're putting up a podcast you only say things about yourself uh that are positive but in one of the bios that i read of our dear professor muck he admitted um a, a weakness um he has sinned uh he said that 
he is a minority owner of the Green Bay Packers. And <laughs> A, I'm hoping you'll tell me it's not true. And B, why on earth would you publicize that? Well, you know, Joan, this may be, you know, the, the listeners may just kick me out of Dodge after that. But no, I am. I'm originally from Wisconsin, originally from Milwaukee, and I am a Green Bay Packer fan. And I'm sorry to offend all the listeners in the Chicagoland area. But yes, uh, you know, the green and gold is is, is uh, central to who I am as a person. And I am I am a stock owner. So, yeah, unlike the Bears who have to deal with the McCaskies, you know, I, I am I'm helping running running this this successful winning organization up in Green Bay. At least rescue yourself by telling me you had a hand in them getting rid of Aaron Rodgers. Oh, I, uh, you know, I was happy when Aaron Rodgers left. I think most Packer fans were. I mean, talk about a guy who wore out his welcome, who, you know, just really was, was difficult to listen to and, you know, a purveyor of, of again, mis and disinformation. I'm glad that the New York Jets now have to deal with Aaron Rodgers and the Green Bay Packers no longer do. <laughs> I didn't know you were a cheese head. <laughs> I'm sorry, Joan. I'm sorry. I try not to let it influence my political analysis, though. You know, you can escape your roots. No matter how traumatic your Wisconsin childhood was, you live in Illinois now. You can escape <laughs> that. You can heal from it. I grew up in Ohio, and I, uh, I have shed, well, except for the Ohio State University, which I, uh, is ingrained in me. I, you know, I, I don't root for the Buckeyes. I'm, you know, I've moved on. You can do it. You can do it. it it's it's tough, Jody. I will say, you know, when I grew up, the the Bears were the team to beat. So my youth, every year, it was the Chicago Bears crushing the Green Bay Packers. And I know now fortunes have shifted a little bit, but my youth was really you know, lots of, of pain and suffering at the hands of the Chicago Bears, who were the you know the team to beat. So things have been slightly different uh, the last couple decades. And uh, yeah, no, but you know, it's, it's sometimes there's some teams you just can't let go of, and the Green Bay Packers are are one of those teams for me. All righty. Okay. Well, I'll have to I'll have to take a survey and see if we can forgive you for that. But it, you, you know, did some good it, research, Joan. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I always try to find something that um, you least expect. Thank you for being here, uh, Professor Muck. Thank you for helping me uh, end this day on an informative note. And have a great weekend, William. Thanks so much, Joan. Driving it home with Patty Vasquez is up next. Uh, have a good weekend. Stay warm. Stay safe. I will see you Monday. Yes, indeed. I will be here Monday at 2 p.m. And I hope you will join me. Find something this weekend that brings you joy. Okay? Um, I will see you Monday. Have a great weekend. Good night.